is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. What are you talking about? No, it's not him. There's only one more. There is only one more. There is, that's, that's it. One more. Get it right. No. They saw your team put up zero effort. Wake up. Remember in the old days they used to have oxygen for them. Where's the oxygen? They play like absolute just garbage. <laughs> this is the Sports Loud Mouth. Yay! Man, can you keep it down? I'm trying to introduce here. With Errol Marks and Speedy Beanie. You're not even a has-been. You're a never was. You're a never was. You're a never was. What? is up ladies and gentlemen this is a new show of the sports loud mouths i'm your host general marks my co-host speedy the grease bowl pd 631-672-3108 is the number you can go to our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com download our app on ios all you have to do is search us at WWSRN, or you go to Android and search us on the Play Store, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Speedy Petey, what is up, my friend? Very excited. This weekend, headed to Old Timers Day for the Mets on Saturday. There are over 60 ex-Mets, both managers and players and coaches at that event. I'm looking very much looking forward to that. Uh, I'm going with my family and my grandfather getting to go as well. My uncle couldn't go because he had to work, but very much looking forward to that. Even probably more than the game because they're playing the Rockies, so they should win that game easily hopefully but the old timers don't jinx it hurt. yeah uh, true <laughs> you never know <laughs> I, I mean the Mets fans are about to jump off a bridge because the Braves are right behind them so and, and, and the way the Braves are playing they've been unstoppable yeah. I mean uh, the only team that has beaten them in over the last couple of weeks is the Mets right <laughs> I mean it's it's really ridiculous they have been absolutely on an onslaught but unbelievable this is going to take it to, all the way to the end this is going to be a great race for uh, the National League East, so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later in the show. Uh, at 9.30, we'll be talking to ESPN Cleveland radio show host Matt Fontana. He'll be joining the show. And at 10 o'clock, we'll be talking to 33-year vet umpire from the MLB, Dale Scott. He will be joining us first time on our show. Mm-hmm. Matt, I think this is the fourth time. This Matt's is the third on. time Matt's been on oh, our show. Third. Okay. Yep. So happy to have Matt. But, uh, you know, it's so crazy. We live here on Long Island, and the traffic and the road work on 347 is absolutely horrendous. It is as bad the road work is as bad as New York sports, okay? That's how <laughs> bad it is over here. So you're saying the road work is bad as, as the Giants' offensive line for the last decade? Uh, probably. Yeah. I mean, the last time we've seen the Giants actually have an offensive line was 2011. And even that was, like, average at best. Oh, my God. I, I, it, just driving on the road over here just puts me through hell, okay? Just getting home every single day on 347. I don't know if anybody's lived here on 347 or have been in Long Long Island. I mean, everybody's been on the LIE. It doesn't matter where you're from. If you've been to New York, you've been on the LIE. So you've already been on that highway. But Southern states, if you're you're taking the Grand Central or something like that, or, or the Belt, you've been you've been on Southern state. But the worst possible highway in Long Island is 347. There is more road work here than I've ever seen anywhere in the country. It, and for some reason, the road work never ends. Just like the Jets, they never win. So it's just that's why I say it's just like New York sports. But we have a great show lined up for you. We'll talk about Denzel Mims' agent screaming out, trade 
Denzel. I mean, why is the agent speaking for Denzel Mims? Now, we all know Denzel Mims is right on the bottom of the food chain. The Jets do not like him. Robert Sala is not a big fan of his. So, obviously, he is probably on his way out. And and Joe Douglas already said he's not giving him away. He's not releasing him. So, he's going to trade him. The question is... How and when is he going to trade him? That's going to be the question. So we'll get into that. Uh, Donovan Mitchell says he only wants to play for the Knicks, the Nets, and the Heat. So it doesn't look like it's going to be the Heat. It doesn't seem like it's going to be the Nets. So (laughs) I'm predicting it's going to be the Knicks no matter what. So uh, the Knicks are still trailing uh, with these uh, trade rumors. I mean, fifth five-round draft pick. What is it? Five, five first-round picks. picks. Right, five yeah. first-round draft picks. Um, we're also hearing they offered uh, Fournier. And who's the other guy? Open Toppin. Yep. That's right. And they didn't like that trade. So what are they going to offer? They're not getting R.J. Barrett. So we'll get into that a little bit later. Nestor Cortez put on the I.L. with a groin injury. Uh, this is not a serious groin injury, but the Yankees are trying to prepare themselves because it seems like every time a ban injury comes out, it becomes a major one. So uh, I think the Yankees are protecting Nestor for the playoffs. So that's a smart move, even though the Yankees have not really played well in the month of August. Bryce Harper set to rejoin the Phillies as early as tomorrow. And that, that's good news because, first of all, Bryce Harper is one of the big superstars in the major leagues. And uh, Philadelphia is playing good baseball. To, to bring back a bat like that, uh, to play and actually be a part of your lineup, it, it, it's significant. So, uh, good news for the majors, good news for the Phillies. Cowboys left tackle, well, left guard, because I don't think he was uh, going to be a left tackle this year. Tyron Smith out indefinitely. Uh, so, I don't know what how major this injury is, but it seems like it's pretty major if they're saying he's out indefinitely. So, I'm not going to say he's out for the season, but when you hear that, he could be out for five, six, seven, eight games. Yeah, avulsion fractures the same thing Beckton had. So yeah, so that, that's horrible. That is really horrible. Lakers to trade. Well, they did trade Patrick Beverly to the Jazz, likely to let go West, of Russell Westbrook in the next couple of days. So I, you, you've been hearing all different trade rumors. I mean, the Turner trade move, uh, rumor. You heard Buddy Heald as part of a trade rumor to trade Russell Westbrook. Now all of a sudden they get Patrick Beverly. So it, it's just so interesting with all these different significant names that are being brought up over the last couple of days, and all of a sudden Patrick Beverly gets traded from the Jazz. But – the Jazz was never keeping them, and they're not keeping Donovan Mitchell either. So I don't know why anybody thinks that because that Nick that Nick's trade wasn't up to par in as, as far as uh, you know ownership over there, or we all know who we are, we're talking about. Yep. And, and Speedy, who are we talking about? Danny Ainge, mm. the stingy one himself. Well, he hates Nick. He hates the Knicks. He hates That's the organization, <laughs> yep. and he hates ownership. So uh, Danny Ainge has always tried to screw the Knicks. So why not screw him again? So. Uh, five first-round draft picks, I think, is more than uh, more than efficient, but mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it's enough for him. So we'll see and what good, happens. Good luck getting off of that good from the other stingy one in Pat Riley. <laughs> <laughs> Pat Riley. I, I will say this about Pat Riley. Pat Riley, for years, has always set his bars up high. Yeah, and, and now, all of a sudden, 
this offseason, they really couldn't make any moves because their contracts are so high. Right. Uh, so they're trying to sign Tyler Hero, and it looks like they're going to get Tyler Hero on the cheap because he's a restricted free agent and nobody wants him. So <laughs> nobody wants to pay him $180 million. That's what it is. But anyways, why don't we get into this Denzel Mims situation? Because I've been talking about Denzel for a while. I really like Denzel. I I, I I followed him when he played for Baylor. I thought he, for, for a guy that was 6'3", 6'4", uh, unbelievable leaping ability, speed on the outside, 4'4", that he ran at the combine. I thought this guy was a definite star for the New York Jets. And one year, I mean one year of Adam Gase, and it he looked good. He was one of the top five wide receivers in that unbelievable wide receiving class. I think there was like 13 wide receivers drafted in the first two rounds which is the most ever. And everybody thought, as a Jet fan, that Denzel Mims was a steal. I was one of them. Speedy, you were one of them too. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, ever since Robert Soller and Mike LaFleur has come to this team, has, has rejoiced and built this team for what they are now, they don't like Denzel Mims. Now, I could sit here... And I could argue why he would be a perfect fit in a West Coast offense. But Kyle Shanahan's offense, and that's what they're running, is run first, run second, throw third. That's what they are. They're a smash-mouth offense. That's why they brought Conklin in, who can block. That's why they brought Osuma in, because he can do other things offensively, big body. That's what they like to do offensively. We remember George Kittle on the San Francisco 49ers and still there. And all the big wide receivers that they've drafted over the years, San Francisco. And then they got a smash mouth wide receiver like Debo Samuel. The Jets are trying to mimic what the San Francisco 49ers and John Lynch has built over the last couple of years. And Denzel Mims just doesn't fit there. His route running has not been good. As a matter of fact, they have taken him off the field numerous amount of times at practice. He doesn't know the coverage. He doesn't know the plays. And it's, it's really hurt the growth of the offense, the offense since Zach Wilson is a rookie and now a second-year player. Now, I sit here today, and I figure... What could the Jets get for Denzel Mims? Where could he go? And that's a good question. Now, there are three teams that make a lot of sense. And they, they're all affiliated somehow with the New York Jets. Number one, the Baltimore Ravens. Baltimore, I've been saying this all, all along. They traded Brown to Arizona in the offseason at the draft. So they're looking for that other wide receiver to help Bateman out. This is a first-year player. I mean, Bateman was drafted the year before. He missed the whole season. So he's kind of he's really a rookie wide receiver. So Denzel Mims, Baltimore, Joe Douglas, makes a lot of sense over there. He's got a good relationship over there with the Baltimore Ravens. Team number two, the Green Bay Packers. And I will say this. Well, everybody's going to say, well, Green Bay runs the same offense as the New York Jets. Not really. 
Matt LaFleur runs a West Coast offense, but he throws first because he has a quarterback like Aaron Rodgers and runs second. That's what he likes to do. He likes to build the offense around his star quarterback. Aaron Rodgers doesn't have a real predominant number one wide receiver. So where can we go here? Could the, could the Green Bay Packers make a move for Denzel Mim for uh, a third-round draft pick? Possibly. You think right now as a Jet fan, and you wonder, where are they at offensively as an organization? Now, they, they lost Makai Beckton. He's out for the season. They brought Dwayne Brown in for a two-year, $21 million contract. Fondy's here for one more year, and then he's a free agent. Are they going to re-sign him? After giving a guy like Dwayne Brown that kind of money, I don't know if they're going to be able to sign a guy like Font. Now, if Font has a good season this year, he's going to be want, he's going to want more money, and he's going to want to be a left tackle. He's moving to right tackle because his boy, his friend, Dwayne Brown, is moving to the left tackle position because he's never played the right tackle position in his career. And the guard play. We, we know what Elijah Veritaka was in the second half. We know what Lankin Tomlinson is. And, and McGovern, we've been talking about this over and over again. This guy could be a top center in the league if he stays healthy. I, I look at the Jets right now, and offensively, they don't really need Denzel Mims. Offensively, adding Conklin and Asuma, and then all of a sudden they, they have Elijah Moore, who's 100% healthy this year, going into a second season. I expect him to be explosive. Garrett Wilson, who they drafted in the top 10, who everybody believes is a top, he was a top wide receiver, and some people believe this year could be a top 10, top 15, young, two-year wide receiver out of all the wide receiving classes over the last two years. Corey Davis, Braxton Berrios, you have Hall now, you have uh, Michael Carter, who's a very good uh, wide receiver slash running back. They don't need Denzel Mims. So Joe Douglas has to look at this speedy and say, what could we get for him? Could we get a third round draft pick now for him? I I thought he's played very, very well in the two preseason games. He had three catches for 43 yards in the Atlanta Falcons game. He made some he dropped a couple of balls in the first game against Philadelphia, but he he's he's upset that he hasn't played on the first team. But I don't think he's good enough right now when you look at the the wide receiving core that the Jets have speed. Yeah, there's definitely a tough disconnect with what the scheme is and Denzel Mims. And he had that same problem last year, too. Now, obviously, he had the other issues, too, the the COVID issues. He had the weight loss issue where he had to make up a lot of that muscle, too. But now in year two, now you're seeing he still has had trouble fitting and he still has had trouble with the drops, which was his biggest problem. Then you're not being able to develop and take that leap. Yes, he looked good at the beginning of camp, too, but he's still not fixing a lot of those other issues. And he still has talent. He's still going to be valuable for what he is. But again, what he is is not going to work for a scheme that, one, is very motion-oriented. Kyle Shanahan's offenses 
over the years with the 49ers, I've always led the league in percentage of motion, which doesn't bode well for somebody who's not very quick off the line of scrimmage. And now with all the other depth that they have, the two tight ends, the running backs, etc., that he's not going to even have the role in maybe even of a specialist role, too. So I think a fresh start is definitely what Denzel Mims could use. And Joe Douglas, I think, will do well with this kind of thing, knowing that there's a lot of teams that could definitely use the wide receivers. I think the Packers are definitely the best fit for them because the pa- Aaron Rodgers, even though that maybe he doesn't necessarily fit the scheme perfectly, he's always done well with big-bodied receivers. So I think he can make Denzel Mims work. And whether he emerges as the number one or the number two in that offense, he's definitely going to be one of the, their top receivers if he does go over there because Alan Lazard is a two at best, and he's a low-level low level two. They have Sammy Watkins, who can't stay healthy, and then Christian Watson, who's probably he's good but raw. So I think Mims could definitely get in a fast start there. The Ravens are another interesting one, too, for the need. How I have well, the third team, by the way, too. I never mentioned the third team. Yeah, who do you got as the third team? Washington. Washington, okay. I think Washington would absolutely could use a big wide receiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have guys like McLaurin and and the guys that they have brought in over the last couple of years, but I think you add a, a, a weapon like Denzel Mims on the outside, a speed guy, and in that offense, he it's not real they don't really run a West Coast offense over there. No. So I think he's I think it's a spread offense over there. So I think he would work better in a spread offense than he he would in a West Coast offense. I only mention Baltimore and Green Bay cuz they it fits with Joe Douglas and Robert Sala. Right. They're the obvious contenders in need of a wide receiver. Like, every other team that you would say is like a surefire playoff team probably doesn't need a wide receiver. So those are the definitely the two for that. In terms of the value for Denzel Mims, I'm going to say a fourth is probably the most likely right now, but I can see it becoming a third if maybe there is some kind of bidding war for that and a lot of teams are interested in Denzel Mims. But I would say right now a fourth is probably the most realistic option. Um, Michael Larimore in the comment section. Yeah, can, I see that. Yeah. Can Joe get a two for Mims? I don't see that. That being likely, unless he, unless last he plays, year. unless yeah, maybe last year he last would've. year you could have, yeah, maybe if he like breaks out for three games, and I, then... I think they get a third for him. Third, I, okay. I think he's, I think he's good. He's not as good for a second round draft pick, but I think he's good enough to get uh, for a third round draft pick. Joe Douglas has absolutely gotten the most out of some of these players that mm-hmm. he's traded away. So absolutely. I think that it could really work if if he can get a third round draft pick. I trade Denzel. Mm-hmm. I really do. Easily. Um, Michael also says, I'm sorry he wants out, but he didn't want to earn Why does Carl score? say no third? Why not, why not a third? I, I, don't think, I don't think that would be the market value, but I don't think it's impossible for him to get a third. If Again, especially like you mentioned, Carl, all these guys on the list of the Bears, Packers, and Lions, if they're bidding against themselves, maybe it's possible. Now, obviously, the Packers have the most leeway to do that kind of thing because they're the best team by far of those three, but still... Again, I, I don't think it's the re- I think the fourth would probably be the average market value, but I could definitely see a third in certain teams like the Packers. Uh, Larimore, going back to his comment, I'm sorry he wants out, but he didn't want to earn his spot due to his draft status. We I agree with him. We don't owe him nada. This ain't Baylor, and this ain't the old regime. I wish him well. I do, and I, for one, still a fan, but okay, the grass is always greener. Um, I like that saying, the grass is always He also greener. says, uh, <laughs> so Kajer must have shown Mims the writing on the wall. Yeah, definitely possible. Uh, and Snug has a bunch of other comments after that. Of course uh, he does. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael Laramore also says, uh, Betty goes to New England, he'll be a star, which Snug also says as well. That's <laughs> why Joe Douglas will not release him. Yes. Because Nor should he. Everybody knows that if he gets released, he's going to New England. And the Jets do not want to see Denzel Mims on the on the field twice a year, especially if he becomes a star. And, and who knows? Uh, we have seen this before. Players have left the Jets, went to other teams, and become better. 
they've just been better players. Right. For for some reason, the Jets couldn't get the best out of them. Yeah, and I think the scheme itself especially, I think you could definitely either get it better with a different coaching staff or a better quarterback just in general to make that kind of thing work. And I think the Packers are that perfect team to make it work just because of how well Aaron Rodgers has done with big-bodied receivers. And keep in mind, big-bodied receivers that have struggled in other places mm-hmm. too. So Aaron Rodgers at least can make it make it where he's a at least decent receiver. Uh, yes, snug Denzel Mims had 133 yards last year. Carl says trade him to the Bears for a fifth. I mean, yeah, that's definitely possible, but I think the way that these Denzel other... Mims was like a sixth guy off the bench yeah. last year right. with 100 133 yards. Yeah. And if you remember, the year before that, he was a top five rookie. Yeah. For, he, he was. For the value he played, like in terms of targets, in terms of contested catches, he did well in a lot of advanced statistics. Now, obviously, he didn't put up the big numbers because he was hurt a lot of the time, and the Jets' offense was a mess with Adam Gase, but he still did well for his role in that, in that year as well. So, yeah, definitely possible, I think, to be able to emerge that way. The Bears, I think, will have to give up more than a fifth in order to do it. I think... Fourth would probably be the value I would expect, but I could definitely see a team like the Ravens or the Packers that have a lot of good talent already going for the third. Uh, Michael Laramore says, how about straight up for the LP for the Bears? They don't want to pay. Yeah, you're (laughs) going to need more than that for Roquan Smith, I will say this, (laughs) and the Bears need wide receivers. They they have too many tight ends and too many running backs. And Justin Fields is going to get killed this year with their offensive line. Yeah. But Denzel Mims might he, – he's not the answer. He can't block. That, that's, right. that's a weakness of Denzel Mims. His strength is his length. He's long. He has speed. And he can catch. Those are the strengths of Denzel – and he can run, by the way. He runs a 4-4. But it's not – you can't teach length. That's something that you can't teach. And we've heard this over and over and over again with different coaches we've had on the show and different analysts. But what, what bothers me about this is – why couldn't the Jets figure this out with – and it shows me Robert Sala is a rookie coach, and I love Robert Sala. I think he's a great coach. I think he's going to be sensational. If he gets this team to win seven, eight games this year, it's a success story. But if he doesn't, and you're going to go back and look at some of the plays they let go, Sam Darnold being one of them. They gave up on Sam Darnold. Now, Sam Darnold has not succeeded over there uh, it, with the, the Carolina the Carolina Panthers. It, it hasn't worked out over there. Now Baker Mayfield. And by the way, I heard through a grapevine, people that I know over there that works for the Carolina Panthers, that said that Sam Darnold was outplaying Baker Mayfield. Mm-hmm. But Baker Mayfield won the job because of who he is, the personality right. that he is. Uh, Michael Laramore also says, but to defend Mims, he was never taught correctly. Uh, are we sold on Salah, really, he says. Uh, I think a lot of Jet fans are sold on Salah. Now, we have to see what this defense is this year. Now, there is no excuses with the secondary. You added Sauce uh, in, in the offseason, in the draft, uh, DJ Reed. You've added pieces to that secondary. Uh, would it, This is a good Good defense, secondary. Now, now the front seven. Is Carl Lawson the player that they thought he was a couple of years ago when they, they, they brought him in in free agency? Now, he missed last year. Everybody thought he was the best player on the field. Now, all of a sudden, he missed the whole season, and now we're expecting 
some butterflies to come out of his pants or something. I don't know. I don't know. I every Jet fan thinks that this guy's gonna have ten sacks, which by the way, he's never had double double digit sacks in his whole career. No, they brought him in because of quarterback hits and pressure rates, not necessarily the amount of total sacks. Now, granted he wasn't a starter the first two years he was with Cincinnati, but since he was became a starter, his highest sack total was eight and a half. So you're you're dealing with a case more on basing it on the analytics, which the Jets have been driven on with since Joe Douglas has come in there. Uh, Michael Larimore also says keep Bryce Hall off the field. Eccles is a player. So, I, again, with the secondary depth, though, they're definitely going to rotate a lot of guys in there. Why I, does everybody hate Bryce Hall? I don't he, get it either. He had two bad preseason games. In the first half of the season last year, he was one of the best corners in the league. Yep. He was. He stopped Jamar Chase. He was one of very few that kept Jamar Chase under 50 yards last year. Right. He was. Yeah. So why does everybody hate this guy? <laughs> it's, it's just the typical. It's the typical overreactions we see. We, we were talking about it a couple of weeks ago with with Yankees fans and Mets fans too. They love to overreact to everything too. The Jets fans are in the same boat right now because all of a sudden you're dealing with a case where this guy is being is being outplayed by Brandon Eccles out of nowhere. Brandon Eccles played well last year too in his role, and the, the Jets have a lot of different options they could go to now with a much deeper secondary. I know a lot of Jets fans are concerned with the safety position, the raw safety position, but we've always seen Robert Sala even in San Francisco, they never had great raw safeties. They had versatile either linebacker hybrids or corner hybrids that they made work. Katie, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Okay. Um, have you ever have you ever put bread in a toaster? Yes. Have you have you ever tried to put metal in a toaster while you're toasting your bread? Yes or no? Metal like uh, metal foil? Yes, but now I'm that, talking no. about forks. No. Nah, uh, no. And there's a reason why. Why? Right. Cause, why? Yeah, because then it'll explode. No. Because you can electrocute yourself, right? Yeah. Okay, so we understand that you shouldn't stick metal in a toaster because it electrocutes you, right? Yeah. Now, going to the Jets, and I know everybody's going to say, well, what is that supposed to mean? It's, it's very simple. The Jets, over the years, have electrocuted themselves. Mm. Every single time. Look at the players, over the years, the Jets have let go, let go and all of a sudden, they go to another team, another organization, and that organization figures them out and gets them to play harder. Or they figure out that they're not fit to play linebacker. They're fit to play safety. They're fit to play corner instead of playing safety. Th- this has been a problem for the New York Jets year in and year out. And they electrocute themselves. Yeah, and I think you also have a case now, too, where they don't have to rely on that anymore to make that kind of thing work because of the depth in their secondary and their linebackers, too. All these Jets fans are concerned about the linebackers especially, but they brought in Kwan Alexander now, so that changes a lot. They say that the Jets' weakest part of their defense is their linebacking core. Okay, so let's go to their linebacking core. They have Alexander, Mosley, and Williams. Oh, my God, that's horrible. Yeah. That is horrible. You have two linebackers that are Pro Bowl players, that have been Pro Bowl players, and another guy that played well last year after they brought him from the Jaguars because the Jaguars gave up on him. And Kawan Alexander is still only 27. So, so he... Why is it? I, I just I, And I say this with a lot of love to Jet fans, and I am a Jet fan. Everybody knows. Everybody keeps asking me all over social media, are you a Jet fan or are you a Giant fan? I am a Jet fan, ladies and gentlemen. But I'm an honest, real Jet fan. And for some, and I'm not saying all Jet fans, Jet fans like to shock themselves in so many ways. And why I say they want to shock themselves is because 
with what the Jets are as an organization this year, they're the, one of the youngest teams, one of the top five youngest teams in the NFL. Yeah. They are very young. Okay, They brought in veteran players that fit the culture over there that they believe they can get these young players to play harder or play with the veteran players. Right? Right or wrong? Mm-hmm. But the, the Jets over the years, not the, not the Sala regime, I'm not saying that, not the Douglas regime, but over the years, we have seen this before. We have seen fans come out and take shots at players and, and, and coaches, and, and they were completely wrong about them. Mm-hmm. And I can name a bunch of coaches that the fans loved or just wanted to hate here <laughs> just because of their personalities or maybe they just lack of talking over here or speaking. Yeah, <laughs> the one extreme to the other with Rex Ryan and Tom Bowles especially. Uh, I, I mean, and then you have Adam Gase, uh, Mr. Well, yeah, Silly Eyes. Of I course. Mean. Uh, Michael, before we go to break, uh, Michael Laramore, we got talent. How long will the growing pains cost us games this year? Uh, Carl says, Jets always working with two pieces of stale bread. <laughs> And Snuck says, I miss the Gase regime. Of course you do. He he misses the Gase regime because they they were... Actually, the Gase regime was better than last year's regime, if you really look at it. It wasn't... I I mean, that's nothing to brag about. But he also lost to the Bengals, who had the first pick of the draft. That's nothing to brag about, okay, but whatever. Um, Hopefully this year will be different. Uh, Second year for Robert Soller and Mike LaFleur and and some of the veteran players they brought in and some of the young players that they brought in. It's going to be fun to watch. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be talking to ESPN Cleveland radio show host, our friend Matt Fontana, here on the Sports Loudmouths. You're you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. This is the Sports Loudmouths. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. We are the Sports Loudmouth. 631-672-3108 is the number to call. Remember, you can go to our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Download our app on iOS, WWSRN, or Android, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Well, 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 Speedy told me we were getting him on again. We love this guy. He's been a fan of the show, a friend of the show, and we're happy to have him on. We are now talking to ESPN Cleveland radio show host, Matt Fontana. Matty, what's going on, man? What's up, guys? How are you? We are good, man. How are you feeling? Oh, good. The end of training camp is always kind of like a, it's like you want to get excited about it because you go, okay, the grind is over, but the season hasn't even started yet, so we've still got three months to go, so the blistering heat will come to an end soon, but it's just kind of a quick lull here, get the last game in this weekend, and then we're off to the regular season. How's the humidity over there? Is it bad over there in Cleveland? Yeah, I mean, I've lived here my whole life, so it's like I've I've seen summers that it would rival Florida, Arizona, all that kind of stuff. And I got to say, for some reason, this this August has been really hot. The humidity is here and there, but we've had some bad storms mm. too. But they've had a couple of days, even just on camp, that I go, man, I, I'm just glad I'm I, I'm sweating <laughs> here. I'm staying on the sidelines in shorts and a t-shirt. I can only imagine what it's like out there in a practice. <laughs> it's been pretty brutal compared to some years oh past. Oh my god, sure. I can't tell you how bad it's been here in New York. Today it was like 87, 88. It felt like it was 104. That's what yeah, it felt like. Yeah, and and, and, and they tell me, well, you got pools. You can go you can go to a pool or you can go to the beach. 
First of all, I'm not going to the beach because there's too many shark sightings. So I'm not going in the water. I mean, every other day we hear that uh, a shark is on land and, and, and you have these different people wrestling, you know, to the sand. Oh, and, then, and then you have uh, sites uh, in Montauk with, you know, great whites, tiger sharks, hammerheads. I mean, I am not – and I used to be a surfer. I will not – ever step foot in an ocean again. We just got walleye here. They got teeth, but they're not nearly as big. They won't do too much. They taste amazing. They're delicious. They're fun to catch, but that's pretty much all we got in the lake. Well, I like, you know, the first time I ever had alligator was in Louisiana. Mm. I had the opportunity to go to uh, Mardi Gras. And when I was there, everybody was like, oh, you got to try the unbelievable alligator. I was like, what the hell is an alligator? I mean, you're talking about a real alligator? The alligators that eat people, that alligator? They say, oh my God, it's so good. So I had it one time and I was, I, we were hanging out uh, by the museum over there, and somebody was like selling them, and it looked like a hot dog. It was like a, like a sausage, and I was like, "You sure this is edible?" He's like, "I'm telling you, you'll like it." I I started chewing on it; it was like rubbery, but it was actually Very really rubbery. really good. It was really yeah. really good. I, a little, I little watery for me. It tastes yes, like, everybody says chicken. You know, everything tastes no, like chicken. For no. me, it's always it, it, it's just a little rubbery, little watery. Yes, to me, so. definitely different. Very yeah. salty too. Well, <laughs> yes, but anyways, why don't we get into Cleveland football first? So. Uh, what are your thoughts to this Josh, Deshaun Watson situation? We had you on last time. You were kind of skeptical about yep. skeptic about the whole Deshaun Watson and bringing him in. And then there were stories coming out that Baker Mayfield wanted out, so they they would rather trade him and bring in another quarterback. So what what are your thoughts to this? 11-game suspension and, and him paying the NFL $5 million. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people see it as a victory for the Browns. The season isn't completely lost. You know, as bad as it went bad last year for the Browns with Baker injuries across the board, is you know, last year was a disaster. It's what people say. They were in the playoff hunt up until the final two games. And actually, the second to last game of the year, they were playing Monday night against Pittsburgh. They got eliminated from the playoffs on Sunday because uh, the team they needed to lose won. So they were in it up until the end. So everybody says, okay, 11 games, you have Jacoby Brissett, you know, can he go six and five? Can he maybe even five and six, keep it alive for Jacoby, or I'm sorry, for Deshaun Watson to come back, you know, for his six games. At that point, you're going to have to ask him to go five and one, probably to try to push. And maybe even that's not enough. But I think for the 11 games, most people understand, you know, Browns fans at least have some reason to be optimistic for the season. You know, on the fine, a lot of people wanted or a lot of people were reporting that the NFL wanted to basically count last season as a suspension because he didn't play. The thing is, he made money last year, so they wanted to recoup some of that. Um, I think he made $12 million. Mm -hmm. Somebody said that they were even shooting for all of that. So, you know, you talk about the five. Okay, there. The 11 games makes a lot of sense. Six is Mm -hmm. what Sue Robinson had done. So 11 is pretty much right in the middle. So you roll with that, and and that's where that comes out. You know, the fine, and there were reports out that Watson was willing to pay more money to get less games. And we asked him that. He didn't comment on it, which I think he owes to his teammates. He probably owes to the organization and the fan base, too, to try to get on the field as much as he could. So what do you think is the best record the Browns will have to go in order to weather the storm during the 11 games? Do you think 5-6 and six is something that they could aim for and realistically make the playoffs? Is it something bigger than that, you think? I mean, they definitely could do better. I think they have no choice but to go at least five and six. I think you go for best record on the way out. Doubt that'll win you the division. It might still, you might still get that wild card. So, and I think you're just playing a dangerous game of asking Deshaun Watson, who's going to miss all this time, who's coming back to then not lose, you know, not lose a game. I know his first game's back against this Houston. A lot of people are talking about that and, and they're not a very good team. I get it. But 
that's asking a lot. I need a little buffer space, you know, for him to at least go five and one. Okay. I think at the bare minimum, they have to go five and six. You look at their record, they have four games to start that they will be favored in and probably all four of those, I guess maybe Carolina could change a little. Baker got the job. It's on the road. But last time I checked, the Browns were a one-point favorite. They should beat Atlanta. They should be able to beat the Jets, sorry. And then they should be able to beat Pittsburgh. The problem is that they have seven games after that that are just – it's a meat grind. It's its the Bengals. It's the Ravens. You've got Miami in there. You've got Buffalo in there. You've got Tampa Bay in there. You've got New England who waxed them last year. You've got the Chargers, so I'm a pretty big believer in. So it's almost like I, – I, I'm almost looking at that second seven-game stretch – and that is where the Brown season will be told, in my opinion. Yeah, I need to see what they do in the first four, but that next seven games, that's going to tell the story because there is a chance that that goes south. You're going to bring back Deshaun Watson just for the just for the reps and just to get him some experience, knowing that you're probably going to be out of the playoff hunt. We are talking to ESPN Cleveland radio show host Matt Fontana. Matt, Kareem Hunt has been speaking a lot this offseason, a lot. And uh, he believes he should be the number one and Nick Chubb should be the number two. I guess that's what he believes. But we all know that Nick Chubb is the number one. And if he stays healthy, he's one of the best running backs in the league. So what is going on right now with Cleveland? Are they trading Kareem Hunt before the season starts? Where is he going? I don't think he's going anywhere right now. Um, You know, you talk about Kareem and his thoughts. I think it's just more he wants to get paid because he and Nick are best friends. They are, when we talk about the team, you know, I could point to a couple of guys, you know, Miles and Jadavian Clowney, uh, Miles Garrett and Jadavian Clowney really formed, you know, a pretty, pretty solid relationship and friendship, mm-hmm. you know, some of the offensive line. But legit, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt might be the best f- friend group that is on the Browns. And that's how close they are. So um, I don't know if it's so much he, he just wants to get paid. Mm-hmm. You know, he's 27 years old. He's at a less premium position at the running back. When he did sign his extension, he got up into the top 10 for average money, which was insane because he was making less than $10 million per season. (laughs) That's how bad running backs get paid. I think a lot of people are looking at, you know, his situation for for those that might not know or or, or don't remember. Uh, You know, he's on Kansas City, led the league in rushing, Mm -hmm. uh, had an off the field incident uh, that was very graphic and very caught on tape where he assaulted a female. He was then released and the GM that drafted him in Kansas city or he's actually come up a lot with this Watson situation where people ask me, they go, why'd you give Kareem Hunt a second chance? I go, because he owned to his mistakes. He accepted the responsibility for what he did. He never once made an excuse for what he did. And uh, he was remorseful in what he did from there did sign an extension with the Browns, which a lot of people are saying, Oh, he should owe his career to the Browns. I think that's where you got that deal from that deal is set to expire. And he goes, okay, what are we doing here? Right. And I don't think he wants to go into a lame duck season where he doesn't have anything beyond this. If we've seen anything with injuries this year, guaranteed money is very important. And he still feels like he can be a number one back. He's only 27, as I mentioned, and he, he feels like it's time to get paid. I can't begrudge him for that. I really can't. Mm. And I think the biggest question is what do the Browns have in store for him on the field? I think one of the biggest things that hurt the Browns offense last year behind Baker Mayfield getting hurt, because I was number one. But the second one was Kareem Hunt getting hurt because he right. missed the vast majority of the season. The offense was not the same without him on the field. So I think if I had to place a bet, you know, the Browns, they don't like letting guys just walk away for nothing. But I also feel like they might play this out to see how the first, you know, chunk of games go before right. the trade deadline. And if they're out of it, then maybe they make a move and try to just get something for them. 
Uh, if they're in it, they'll hold on to him, and if he leaves, he leaves. But I, I do unfortunately think this will be his last season in Cleveland. Well, I, I'm not saying that Hunt thinks that he's better than Nick Chubb, but if if you're an NFL player, you always think that you're better than the other guy. So I, that's well, especially when you led the league in of rushing course. at one point. Uh, of like, course, he, he knows how good he is, and, yes. and he just knows that his time is like any NFL player's time is short, and, and he wants to cash in with a contract. Of course, I can't can't blame him for that. So why don't we get into the wide receivers? And Amari Cooper is now the number one over there in Cleveland. We, we all remember Jarvis Landry. We all remember Odell Beckham. And we remember the high-flying Browns that everybody expected last year, but they couldn't stay healthy. They haven't stayed healthy for the last two years. So what is this offense about? Is it going to be run first, run second, throw third? Or we're going to see a lot of Amari Cooper out there. I mean, you're going to see a lot of Mari Cooper just because they don't have much depth behind him. <laughs> That's right. Peoples-Jones yeah. who's going into his third season. I mean, he's a big guy. A lot of people are excited for him, but a lot of question marks behind him. They have a rookie, David Bell, third-round pick. Uh, don't expect him to light the world on fire. They have Anthony Schwartz. He's mm-hmm. only a second-year guy out of Auburn. He's a speedster. He's one of the fastest guys, honestly, I've ever seen on a football field. He has trouble catching the football, you know, so it's like they they have some guys there, but really it's Amari Cooper and pretty big drop off after that. As far as what they're going to do, the Browns at one point boasted the best offensive line in football. They have the best guards, in my opinion, and and Wyatt Teller and Joel Batonio. They're all pros. Jack Conklin's a former All-Pro. Jed Wills is a younger guy, but he's made a Pro Bowl. And J.C. Treader, obviously the Browns let J.C. Treader go, retired today. Their incumbent was Nick Harris. He made it all of two snaps in the first preseason game towards ACL. He's out. Now they have to rely on a guy named Ethan Posick to step in. And Jack Conklin has not played uh, at all this this uh, summer because he's recovering from uh, patella tendon surgery because he missed a lot of last year. Uh, he got stepped on, tore his triceps. Right. The first game he came back, he tore his patella tendon in his knee. So <laughs> he had a real rough year. But, you know, so I guess my point to say is, that offensive line, what it used to be, it's still semi there. Teller's still there. Batonio's still there. Jed Wills is still there. They're going to slide. You know, Jack Conklin should be ready to go for the start of the season. And then Ethan Postick's played a lot of football in his career with Seattle, so you slide him into center. The name of the game should be running football. You know, you again, behind that offensive line, when you have Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, the name of the game should be uh, to run the football. But you're going to go to Amari Cooper, and honestly, the second leading receiver on the Cleveland Browns this year is not even going to be a receiver. It's tight end David Njoku. They paid him this offseason like a top t- top five tight end. They expect that out of him. He's always been a guy that's had the athletic traits. Uh, he really is a physical specimen. Just battled injuries in his own right. Also, maybe, you know, obviously quarterback issues from here to there. But uh, I think at the end of the year, he's he, – I'd put good money that he will be the second leading Uh, receiver on the Browns, both targets, receptions, and yards. So I want to go back to Deshaun Watson from a more of a contract situation standpoint because his cap hit this year is not about $9.4 million, but then he's about $55 million for the remainder of the contract and all guaranteed money. You think there's any way that maybe they would be able to restructure that kind of thing to make it work because they're going to have a, lot of, a hard time keeping a lot of their draft picks from 2019 and 2020 that have done very well. Yeah, I mean, welcome to the name of the game in the NFL, right? I mean, there's always that's one of the Brown safeties is a guy named John Johnson. He's a really good player. Why did it, why did the Rams have to let him go? Couldn't pay him, you know. And that's, I guess, the mark of a good team is when you have a lot of guys that are on good contracts. You know, they signed Nick Chubb to his extension. Miles Garrett a couple years back was the highest paid defensive player for about a week before Joey Bosa signed his deal. So Denzel Ward got his money. Wyatt Teller, Joel Batonio, or top five paid guards, um, you know. And then you talk about Sean Watson. Yeah, the salary cap is going to jump. 
really with the Browns, and this is why Jimmy Garoppolo really doesn't didn't seem like an option for them with the twenty four million he's owed. They need to roll over a lot of cap. You know, so that's like when the NFL, if most people probably know, unused cap from one year, you can roll over to the next. They at this point, I've seen different numbers. It goes back and forth. I just know it's over thirty million dollars is what they have. They really want to roll over a lot of that and be able to apply that to next year uh, when some of this money. And yeah, there's always going to be potential casualties or you know guys that they're going to have to to restructure. I guess the only good thing is some of these deals were done, you know, with the salary cap on its way up. You know, maybe it'll kind of give you some wiggle room there. But Andrew Barry, the one thing is he's, you know, his third year now as general manager. He loves those veteran one-year deals. He really does. It's what he got Jadavian Clowney back on. Another guy is Anthony Walker. And he doesn't mind signing guys for one year, a couple million bucks to just kind of plug and play a spot. And then knowing that you have your franchise guys uh, that are making all the money. So, yeah, I mean, he's got, you know, a lot of money that is about to hit. They do have some wiggle room, though, which is rolling that cap over. We are talking to ESPN Cleveland radio show host Matt, the great Fontana. Matt, uh, AFC, the AFC North is so very interesting, and uh, it's stacked. We, we talk about how strong the AFC is, but you look at uh, the Steelers. The Steelers are a much better team. They added Jack in the offseason. This defense is going to be high-flying. It's going to be fun to watch. They added some good coaches in the offseason, and offensively they questioned you know, who the starting quarterback is. Is it Mitchell Trubisky? Is it their – the rookie, uh, it could be any anybody playing and starting over there for the, the Steelers. But then you have Baltimore. They upgraded offensively this year, this offseason. They added Hamilton in the draft. This is going to be a high-flying, fast-paced defense. And then there's always the Bengals, who added to that offensive line. The weakest part of their whole team was their offensive line, and they added possibly two pro ball players to that offensive line. So when you look at where the Brown the Browns are in this division – where do you think they match up? I mean, I think it's it's like anything. It's what if I Deshaun Watson for the whole season, you can make the case that they could be the favorite. He's not. It's pretty clear that they're third, maybe even fourth. You know, um, I think most people are, are expecting that down year for Pittsburgh. I kind of am. You know, I've talked to some people that cover them, and they just say Kenny Pickett is like not even close. Like he doesn't even look like he belongs on an NFL field. Really? And uh, yeah, some people are talking to. They said actually. Um, you know, Mitch Trubisky will get the start, of course. Yes. But they said Mason Rudolph is actually the one that they think has had the best camp. Could be in line, like again, if they start Mitch for a little while and then it starts going bad, then they could turn over to Mason. But I've heard that Pickett, and again, I'm not out there. It's just this is off of things I've heard from right. people. But they said that Pickett's not even like remotely close. So wow. that'll be you know a tough situation for them. I know Tomlin's got that record you know, of, of going at least 500. And you're right, that defense is very good, mm-hmm. but you can make the case Browns or Steelers at the end. You know, with Baltimore, if anything, the Lamar contract, if that's going to kind of bleed over, I think a lot of people are looking at, at them trading away uh, Hollywood Brown and just, you know, what were they doing there? I think that probably ticked Lamar off maybe a little bit too, but you have arguably the best tight end in the league and you're getting J.K. Dobbins back. Um, you know, they lost Peters and Humphrey last year, so – they're just they're fine and just getting healthy, right? Lamar, Dobbins, Gus Edwards, mm-hmm. uh, they lost some guys on that offensive line, so their health's fine. And then the same thing like you mentioned with the Bengals, they go out, they get Alex Kappa, they sign Leo Collins. The one thing that they needed to do was protect Joe Burrow, and they did that. And I think the only potential is that hangover, right? You know, can they get back there, or was it a fluke, or are people? 
as crazy as it sounds like, are they going to figure out a way to try to defend Jamar Chase? Is now all of a sudden going to be, hey, we are going to stop Jamar Chase. Let Tyler Boyd, um, you know, and T. Higgins try to slow us down or try to beat us. Well, that might be a mistake, too. I, I don't know. You know, I just kind of projecting maybe that the Bengals uh, will be, won't be the best team in the state. But, yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough. I think when, when you look at how it shakes out, there's just a lot of unknowns. And, you know, for some, again, it's Lamar's contract. Can the Bengals keep it going? And then, you know, I would say three out of the four have quarterback questions, right? Is right. Lamar's contract going to bleed in? Who's starting in Pittsburgh? And how good can Jacoby Brissett be? So I wanted to ask about Lamar's contract because he set a week one deadline. Do you think that'll impact the way he plays too? Because everyone knows, especially with running quarterbacks, a lot of the times one injury could definitely hurt, hurt that kind of thing because he turned down was something that would have made him the second highest paid quarterback. So what do you think in terms of the approach for the Ravens and for him? Because maybe they don't trust, maybe he doesn't trust the Ravens like you were saying with the Brown incident. Brown's kind of created this because he wants a fully guaranteed contract that's that's everything i've been reading and it's tough because lamar represents himself too so it's not even like he's got an agent that he can go off to the practice field and say you know eric costa go call my agent he is his own representation and you're right he was offered money that rivaled the kyler murray deal and he said no i want fully guaranteed and the ravens were like we're not going to do that because when they get hurt they want that money so there's only one way for that to like be proven and that's for him to get hurt and for him to like, you know, I think he did last year, unfortunately, and prove to the Ravens how important he was and they still didn't give him the guaranteed money, you know, or at least what he's looking for. Now I understand completely that he's asking for something that's only ever been done once in the history of the NFL. And that was the Deshaun Watson deal. And the Ravens say, Hey, that's their deal, not ours. But for, for him to go out there and say, I'm going to go play fighting for guaranteed money that really matters because I could get hurt at any time. Power to Lamar. I really, because like if I were him, I'd be like, I'm not stepping back on that field. Like, that's not how this is going to happen. And they could franchise tag him. Like, I've seen that too. Like, he's obviously getting guaranteed money this year because it's the fifth year option. And then next year they could franchise. I guess they can franchise tag him again. But that's guaranteed. I, I don't know. I guess I'm, that's why I'm not an NFL GM. But I would just say, okay, of that guaranteed money that you would have given him franchise tagging him twice, why don't you just come and find a way to meet in the middle with the contract? But um, you know, we know how good Lamar is. Lamar's without a doubt a top five NFL quarterback, and he's electric for what he does and how he can do it. Um, but I could just, I mean, can you really just shut that down in week one and say I'm not going to worry about it? You know, is it like when you're out? running and you know in practice and, and you know you feel you, you feel a twinge or whatever you know in any game you take a hit something like that I, I, it's a lot I kind of maybe as a Browns fan I hope it bleeds into the season because then it would spell doom for the Ravens but we'll see I will say this I am I, I do like Lamar Jackson I really do I don't know if he's a top five quarterback I would say he's a top 10 I would put him nine or 10 even winning the MVP a couple of years ago there are things about Lamar Jackson that scare me as he gets older uh, because he depends a lot on his legs and, and less on his arm. He's going to have to do what Russell Wilson did late, as he got older, is, is became more of a pocket-present quarterback. And if Lamar does that as a lefty, I think he could be very successful here. Now, that's what scares me. I don't know if he can. I don't know if he could take the pressure in the pocket. We've seen it in the playoffs. He's not a good pocket-present quarterback. And when teams start to put pressure and, and bring up safeties and hide safeties in the blitz – He's running for dear life, and that's what scares me about Lamar. Teams know how to stop Lamar Jackson. They just don't do it in a regular season. They wait, and, and, and they have all these different blitz packages that they use in the playoffs. So that's what scares me about Lamar. But I think Lamar is a sensational quarterback, and I agree with you. Lamar has to protect himself. 
not anybody else. Protect himself because his legs, his arm, that's the golden ticket. And that's the, that's the most important part of his career is getting everything he can right now. Until And if he doesn't get it, I'd sit out. Um, as everybody knows, we are talking to ESPN Cleveland radio show host Matt Fontana. Last question for me, Matt. Uh, there are a lot of juggernauts in the AFC. Everybody keeps talking about the Chargers, and they're talking about Vegas, and they're talking about, oh, look at Kansas City. They got weapons now. It's not just one guy. It's a bunch of guys. And Pat Mahomes looks sensational right now. And then we talk about Buffalo. Josh Allen looks, uh, he, he put up a 40 while Buffalo put up 40 in a preseason game. So who is the juggernaut in the AFC? I mean, I'm still on the on the Chiefs. You know, I'm with you. I think everybody wants to look at Tyreek Hill and say that he was a big part of it. I think it was more, and I'm not saying Tyreek Hill's not talented. He is, but I, I think that was more of the creation of Andy Reid and, and, and Patrick Mahomes for that. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I'm picking the Chiefs to win the AFC this year, so I would probably have to say that they're the juggernaut. Real tough sledding for the Raiders, you know, just with how good that division is. And Devontae Adams certainly helps. Um, I do have some questions about Josh McDaniels. We'll have to see about that. Uh, I'm a pretty big Justin Herbert guy. I think mm. he's going to be really, really good. So I think the Chargers are going to be just fine. Uh, I'm not ready to start crowning Denver so fast. Like, I like Russell Wilson. Always been a big Russell Wilson guy, but key guys coming off some injuries, so we'll see what they do. I think the South pretty much, I'm not a big believer in the Titans nor the Colts. I think it kind of sucks. And then the East, yeah, I, I, same thing. Like, I think Buffalo. I think the biggest thing that not a lot of people are talking about is losing Brian Dable. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that just, I've seen that kind of happen before, right, where you talk about, okay, yeah, I know, Josh Allen is very good. They have a lot of talent there. But when you lose that chemistry, when you lose just kind of that sink that you have, again, they could come out and prove me completely wrong and they could just pick right up. But I just think that that is a little bit of an under radar thing that I'm just keeping my eye on with them. But uh, yeah, if I had to pick one, they're, they're my pick to win the FC this year. I think Kansas City don't skip a beat. I think Patrick Mahomes coming right back. Again, like anything, if they can stay healthy at some key positions, specifically that offensive line. Um, I don't see any reason they're not back in the Super Bowl. All right, my last question. One guy on both sides of the ball, one offense and one defensive player that kind of under the radar that you think will have a big impact for the Browns this year. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Tua. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's one guy. I don't know. Okay, that's his Tyreek on that one. <laughs> well, because, well, and then, yeah, of course, you know, him and then, you know, Devontae Adams, of course, got to hype up Derek Carr, and it's just like, <laughs> it, it just comes off asinine to me. Because kind of also Watkins was talking smack too, and I was just like, <laughs> oh, "Okay, fine." I'll do defense to start. There's a there's a few guys, a few newer guys over there. Um, Greg Newsom, second year corner out of Northwestern, first round pick. I'm a huge believer in him. I think he and Denzel Ward will eventually become the best corner duo in the NFL. Mm. I think he's got a lot of skills. Unfortunately, he's been slowed by a little bit of a hamstring injury in camp. He'll be ready to go for the season. Another guy, he's under the radar to a point because every single person picks him for this answer, and his name's Grant Delpit. Safety yeah. out of LSU. He missed his first year. He tore his Achilles, so he played last year as his second year, but really his first year. He's big. He's strong. He's fast. He's got every tool to be an all-pro safety. He had injury concerns. That's why he fell to the second round. Unfortunately, those came to fruition, getting hurt in his first training camp, but he's back healthy again. Um, so I'm really going to look to him uh, to make some plays. And one other guy, too, uh, Jordan Elliott. He's got to step in. They have brand-new D tackles this year, and we've heard nothing but rave reviews on Jordan Elliott, um, third-year guy out of Missouri, on that D tackle uh, side of things. So 
Those would be guys defensively. Offensively, you're probably talking wide receivers, Donovan Peoples-Jones, big tall kid out of Michigan, third year. He's going to be your number two. Um, he's learned a lot from Amari Cooper so far in this camp, just as you know, body control, different ways to run routes. He's got the physical school, uh, physical skills uh, to be an impactful wide receiver. I mentioned David Bell, third-round guy out of Purdue. Um, people were a little concerned about his speed. He didn't run an extremely fast 40, but he doesn't drop anything. Like we counted, he said he had one drop all of training camp at this point. Um, he's pretty sure handed, so he could be a nice slot guy, uh, to keep an eye on. It's going to be pretty wide open in that wide receiving room. So I really think they're going to be rotating a lot of guys in there. Well, we really appreciate your time. As always, we'll definitely get you on again. Uh, keep ticking, man. Keep uh, you know doing what you're doing over there in Cleveland. We've been listening to you. Big fans of you. Uh, big fans of yours and your team over there in Cleveland. Thank you for joining us, bud. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me on. Matt Fontana, the voice of ESPN Cleveland, ladies and gentlemen. Fantastic kid. Mm. Knows his stuff. He really does. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we will be talking to 33-year vet MLB umpire dale scott here on the sports loud bounce you're, you're, you're listening to the worldwide sports radio network this is the sports loud mouse 631-672-3108 is the number to call remember you can listen to sports loud mouse every tuesdays and thursdays at 9 p.m we are moving to Wednesdays in September from 7 to 10, but we will be here every single Thursday, 9 to 12 a.m. Remember, you can check us out by going to our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Download our app on iOS, WWSRN, or Android, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Speedy, Matt Fontana was fantastic. As As always, yes. He really is, and he knows his stuff. He knows his Cleveland sports, and he knows his... AFC. So mm-hmm. why not bring in a guy that knows baseball? We are now talking to 33-year-old vet. Yes, a 33-year-old vet. Mr. Umpire himself, Dale Scott. What's going on, Dale? <laughs> What's up, guys? Uh, glad to be here. Absolutely. We're happy to have you. How are you and your family doing since COVID? Uh, good. Good. Uh, we tried to do a remodel down in Palm Springs. We have a house there. I'm in Portland. And uh, uh, it started uh, December of 2019. Uh, everything was fine. Uh, then uh, it was supposed to be done May of 2020. And of course, got done May of 21 because of COVID <laughs> and uh, uh, shot that back about another year. But uh, no, everything went well and uh, uh, we're doing fine. So why don't we get into the MLB? Before we do that, let's get into your career. What made you start being an umpire, not only in the MLB, but becoming an umpire? And how, how how is it that you get into the MLB as an umpire? Well, I, I the reason I became an umpire, I started umpiring when I was 15, mm. uh, growing up in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, I loved baseball growing up. I was a, I just was my favorite sport. My grandfather happened to live in L.A. He was a Dodger fan. That made me a Dodger fan. So that was uh, how that all started. And I was pretty confident I would be the first baseman for the Dodgers. <laughs> then I started playing baseball. Um, and uh, it was rather obvious that uh, if you can't hit, run, throw, or field, you're probably not going to be playing first baseman <laughs> for anybody. Um, uh, so, you know, trying to stay in baseball, how, what could I do at 15 years old? And uh, uh, a friend of mine said, try umpire and you make, make some, you know, some coin in the summer. And, uh, and I thought, you know, I was on the bench a lot. I watched the umpires. I, I could probably uh, maybe do this. So, um, that's how I got started, uh, to uh, get into professional baseball. You have to go to umpire school, which I did in the 1981 when I was 21 years old. 
and uh, the rest is history. So how, how have the games changed since when you first started in 1985 to when you uh, all 30 years? Like, what are the biggest differences of what you've had to look for and like the way the game was played? Well, we've changed a lot, both uh, internally uh, as far as uh, when I when I came into the league uh, until the year 2000. Basically, the inmates ran the asylum. The, the, the umpires did that. We, we the structure of MLB just wasn't uh, uh, uh that strong, quite frankly, as far as, uh, uh, you know, uh, with us, that all changed in 2000. Everything went under the commissioner's office. We uh, got rid of the league presidents. We combined the umpire staffs. They started working American and national league and, uh, baseball went extremely corporate. Uh, uh, you know, we, uh, it was just, it changed basically overnight, the working conditions and, and all kinds of stuff. And, and for the most part for the better, but, uh, some of it, maybe not so much. Um, but as far as on the field changes, well, there's a, there's been a ton, you know, it, um, for probably my first, uh, I don't know, 20, 20 years, uh, well, certainly again, until about 2000, there was rarely, if ever a rule change, you would rarely have a rule change, uh, from year to year, maybe a interpretation of a rule or something, you know, but it was just, it was, it was pretty rare. And, uh, starting in 2000, as we went forward, we've had rule changes and things, you know, constantly, uh, all the time. Obviously, a big uh, difference from when I was uh, first starting is a replay. I mean, that's a huge difference. And it's, uh, uh, quite frankly, one, I think it's good. I, I think uh, replay is, uh, is something, you know, that has, has made the game better. Okay. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm happy with that. Now, I, there's other things on the horizon with the automated strike zone and stuff that I'm not sure, uh, you know, how that's going to work out. But uh, that would be probably the biggest change from when I started uh, in the mid-'80s. We are talking to 33-year-old vet umpire Dale Scott. Dale, the 90s really transitioned with the strike. Everybody remembers in 94, 95 when the strike came around and baseball was falling apart and everybody thought it, it was just in turmoil. Then he came back and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, a lot of people believe, saved the game of baseball and Bud Selig was behind them. All the stuff that was going on. And then steroids came out later, you know, a couple of years later, and everybody was talking about it. And then the politicians got involved with it. The Senate got involved with it. What were your thoughts to baseball when the strike was over and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa really took over the game? I was an American League umpire, so I, I wasn't uh, on the field involved with that. Obviously, I was in the game at mm -hmm. that time. And it, there is a lot of truth to the fact that that did help bring uh, baseball back. That did help bring... Uh, uh, people to help them forget about the business side of the game, which was the the, the ugly strike and 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 uh, having no uh, playoffs and World Series uh, that year, and, and you know it was a it was a very much a low point uh, for Major League Baseball. And you know the the uh, Sosa McGuire home run derby, what was that ninety eight? Ninety eight. Yep. It, yeah. It ninety eight. Yep. And the strike, you know, we came back from the strike in ninety five. So it, you know it. It was sluggish the few years. Uh, there weren't the attendance was down. People people were angry. They were upset about what uh, what had happened. You know, people as you know, uh, you devote your your soul into the game that you know under the team mm -hmm. that you like, and 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 you're like a roller coaster when the, when they win and they lose, <laughs> and it's the whole thing. I mean, I, I'm that way with the Oregon Ducks. Okay, so I understand <laughs> what's going on there. Uh, but 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 it, it took a couple seasons, and what you know, it was gradually, very slowly. But and then that home run uh, ninety eight year came about and it, it, i think it was the turning point uh, as far as getting back on the on the plus side for baseball and you know and 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 getting back to the right going the right direction although that did spur the uh 
you know, the whole issue with, with steroids and that ugly part too, that, uh, uh, you know, that finally baseball worked their way through that also. So one of the big things that late, later in your career that um, I know you've mentioned and I've also read about when with you was the concussions that you had towards the end of your career. You had to retire in 2017 because of that. And also a big issue with players as well in Major League Baseball. We've seen other sports address that more with the NFL and the NHL a lot more. Do you think baseball has to do that too? And what do you think are the best ways to do that? Well, I, you know, I think baseball, uh, you know, early 2000s, baseball was uh, really kind of proactive with head blows and, and concussions. And, you know, part of that, I'm sure, was uh, – uh, you know, they can read. They saw what was happening, uh, you know, across the street at the NFL uh, offices. And, and 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 so they were pretty proactive as far as, um, you know, trying to find out more, trying to, to have protocols uh, in place. Um, and so I applaud them for that. You know, when uh, I had uh, four major head blows um, and concussions, uh, the last one took me out uh, uh, in April of 2017. I had whiplash also, uh, uh, that particular one. It was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> but I... Uh, uh, I learned a lot about concussions. I learned a lot about how it's, they vary, the, the symptoms vary. They could be, you know, one of my concussions, light was very, uh, I, I was in a, you know, dark cave uh, for the first uh, week or so because uh, light light was uh, an issue for me. Uh, the next time I was concussed, uh, light was not a problem, but it was uh, 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 loud sounds. My, my dog would bark and I'd go through the <laughs> roof, you know, uh, all kinds of different uh, symptoms and stuff that concussions can have. The, the thing that, the thing that really, uh, what baseball did is is finally in the early 2000s uh, took it seriously and 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 understood that this really is a serious issue, uh, especially when you have repeated blows throughout a career, and especially if you're not completely uh, uh, um, uh, healed from a concussion, uh, and because that's you know if you're concussed and you get concussed again before you're healed, it's not twice as bad; it's exponentially as bad. And uh, so you know it was very key to if somebody is concussed to keep them off the field until they have come back. And so they got real serious with that. You guys, I'm sure you remember when you played years ago, I mean, you, you get hit, Hey kid, you seeing stars, <laughs> you know, and it's, it was like a, a kind of a joke almost, you know? Um, and I mean, I, there were times in the, when I was in the minor leagues and you know, my first 15 years in the big leagues before we got serious with this stuff, there were probably, I, I know there were times that I was uh, hit during the game that I probably should have come out of the game, but we just didn't do that then unless you were unconscious basically. So there's been a lot of, uh, uh, research a lot of uh, 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 you know positive uh, movement by baseball. Like I said, I think they've been very proactive, and and uh, now just going forward, uh, you know, continue with that and continue with the research. Now, Dale, there's a lot of umpires in the MLB that a lot of people don't like, and Angel <laughs> Hernandez is a guy that people talk about every single week. Every time I talk to an ex major league player or a player that plays in the league right now or plays in the minors that know Angel Hernandez. He's one of the more hated umpires in professional sports. I'm sure you know Angel. Tell us a little bit about Angel that people could could get to know that don't know about him. Well, you know, Angel, you know, we went to umpire school the same year. We went to different schools, but, you know, the same year. And, he, and uh, when he was hired, he was hired in the National League. And in fact, he was higher. His number in the National League was number five. Mine, the American League, was number five. When we merged in 2000, because I had seniority, I got to keep five, and he he went to 55. And when I retired uh, in 2018, uh, was officially retired, he took number five back. <laughs> so he's got my number. But uh, look, Angel has uh, been a punching bag. There's no doubt about it. Um, and sometimes uh, the way uh, things are perceived 
the way a guy on the field argues or deals with a manager or a player uh, can be perceived, maybe not necessarily the way it really was, but the perception is you don't care or you're laughing at the guy or you're making fun of the guy. Angel's got one of the biggest hearts I've ever seen, one of the nicest guys I've ever, I've ever known, and he does care. Uh, he cares a, a lot about what he does. Um, you know, guys, there's a there's an overall problem. It's not just Angel. The, the, these on-screen uh, strike zones. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. They're not our friend. Um I, I uh, a couple months ago on my Facebook page, I, I showed the exact same pitch. It was a uh, St. Louis at the Mets game. Uh, the St. Louis broadcast and the Mets broadcast, obviously separate broadcast. Uh, 3-2 pitch, the, the Mets broadcast had it as ball four. The uh, St. Louis broadcast, same pitch, had it as strike three. So that trying to try, just trying to show people that those on-screen zones are not 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not the gospel, you know, but... I, I get it. People see that. That's what they see. That's their perception. If it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. And, but it's it's really been tough, uh, you know, for the umpires because a lot of times, you know, these pitches are just off the off the line on their screen, and 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 you know, he calls that a strike. Oh, that's outside. That's way outside. No, it really isn't. It's pretty. You know, I mean, it's, but but again, trying to trying to convince people that, um, you know, that's going to be a tough thing. But the point is. We get we umpires get uh, painted, I think, sometimes unfairly with some of the stuff that's going on with the strike zone and with the screen stuff. But again, I'm not here to complain or cry. I mean, I understand the job of umpire. We're the bad guys. We're the guy in the scapegoats. We, <laughs> you know, we get all that. It's just uh, sometimes uh, we've lost a little perspective, I think, as right. as as fans and as uh, watching this that, you know, a, a 94 mile an hour. Uh, uh, you know, fastball has got a little movement on it that is this far off. And, and, and the perception is, well, he missed that by a mile. You know, that could have been, even if it was a miss, you know, by a quarter of an inch uh, in a three-dimensional strike zone, the ball moving and, and whatever. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's we're not crazy, perfect, yeah. but we're pretty good. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes I think we're painted in, a, in such a way that we're just, uh, we don't even know what we're doing. I have family members all the time. I told don't necessarily judge the TV box on everything. Watch late. Right. Oh, stop. Late you movements. hate Angel Hernandez. You always complain about him. <laughs> I've compl- I know. Oh, I've, you complain I, about. But him I've also all the told time. people about the TV box too. He's absolutely right. <laughs> all right. So I want to go back. I want to go back to 1988. I did an incident with uh, Billy Martin that actually got him suspended for three games. He threw dirt at you in a game against the Athletics. So I want to hear right. it from your perspective. What was that all about? Well, uh, it was Memorial Day, uh, Monday uh, Memorial Day, and in uh, uh, Oakland. I was at first base. Uh, it was a five o'clock start. It was on ABC Monday night baseball. <laughs> they used to have that actually. Um, and so uh, the Yankees there, it was the top, or excuse me, the bottom of the third inning, Walt Weiss, a rookie uh, shortstop for, uh, for the A's leading off the third. He hit a, uh, a line drive to the feet of uh, Bobby Meachin, second base, um, uh, second base uh, baseman for the um, uh, Yankees. And it was a question of, did he catch it or not? It was very close. I, I was at first, the second base umpire, Rick Reed, actually made the call and said no catch. And from my angle, uh, I didn't, I certainly, I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I mean, I mean, it wasn't obvious one way or the other. So I, you know, that's Rick's got no catch. I got no catch. If I had seen a catch, that's something different, but I, I, I didn't. Um, Meacham, uh, instead of just making sure he's got the out, I mean, he could have thrown, even if we were wrong, could have thrown Weiss out by 30 feet, but he just started throwing it around the horn. Of course, Weiss is uh, uh, safe at first, and, and here we go. So, um, you know, Billy comes out, and, 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 he, and, he, and he runs by me as he's going to Rick from the first base dugout. He said, you saw him catching. I said, no, he trapped it, Billy. And I don't 
think he even heard me, but uh, gets to Rick and he's arguing and whatever. And I'm, I'm just an innocent bystander. I'm standing around <laughs> on the fringes there. And uh, Rick, uh, uh, Richie Garcia was the, was the crew chief. He had the plate that night. And suddenly uh, 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 Billy looks at me and goes, you saw him catch the ball. And I said, no, Billy, he trapped it. And he said, you're full of boom, you know, and, and anytime you personalize that, mm-hmm. you're full of something uh, that's personalized. I ejected him and that, uh, that, that he didn't like that. Um, and so he, uh, he started, you know, <laughs> give him, let me have it, but he was, uh, he was trying to kick dirt on me. And the dirt was still damp from when they had, uh, you know, watered it down to keep the dust down. So he kicks twice. One time, his, his he just, not intentionally, but he just nicked my knee. And I kept pointing, you just kicked me, Billy. You just kicked me. <laughs> so he couldn't get any dirt. So he just bent down, got two, you know, both hands, a handful, and just a little chest pass right into my chest. And uh, so that was that was the ejection of Billy Martin of 88. He uh, he uh, was uh, uh, fined and, and suspended for three games. He came back and managed uh, uh, for a few weeks with the Yankees, never got ejected, and then was fired by George and never managed again. So I was the last umpire to ever eject Billy Martin. <laughs> Certainly not the first. There was a line of five guys before me, but I was the last one. We are talking to 33-year vet umpire Dale Scott. Dale, one of the fans wanted me to ask you this question. Ask him how bad the Wrigley Field umpire locker room is. <laughs> Well, I've heard, I haven't been since they, I, apparently they've redone it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't seen the, the latest reincarnation. I do know that when I started, now you got to remember, I didn't start working uh, the Cubs uh, until 2000 when we combined the leagues. But uh, the first locker room that I ever encountered at Wrigley Field, you know, it was old, uh, like like Wrigley Field. But uh, <laughs> uh, it was, um, yeah, it wasn't a great locker room. Uh, but, you know, we've had worse. Uh, Tiger Stadium was, was worse uh, uh, in Detroit. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, the, the Cubs locker. Now, now when I left the game, they had moved us to a different area and it's actually not too bad at all, but, uh, yeah, it used to be a little uh, shaky. So I want to ask from a, how about the standpoint of the players? We were talking about the Billy Martin incident before, but either an ejection and argument from the players, or even when you were on base, uh, when the, when the runners were on base, like even just chatting, is there any interesting, uh, altercations you've had with any players? Well, uh, you know, um, you know, you know, most players are, are uh, you know, they're, they're just doing their job. They're, they're focused on what they're doing. There's some guys that are talkers a little bit, some guys that hardly say anything. Um, remember, uh, you know, Paul O'Neill, I, I think he just uh, mm-hmm. wasn't, he just inducted into the yes. Yankee Hall of Fame or something uh, uh, just recently. A or, warrior. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, we, <laughs> well, Paul, you know, Paul had a tendency, every time he would come up, his first at bat, he said, hey, Dale. And I go, hey, Paul. And that's probably the nicest thing you're going to hear from Paul the rest of the game. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, he, he, he had to at least once, at least once when you're working the plate, or at least for me, he had to question a pitch. In fact, one time we got into an argument, he fouled the pitch off. He said, was that a good pitch? I said, yes. He goes, no, it wasn't. I go, <laughs> you fouled it off. Why are we even talking about this? Um, but uh, one day in Cleveland, a Saturday afternoon game, I worked the plate. Uh, it was a, like a Fox afternoon game or whatever. The next day I'm at third base. Paul's at third base. There's a pitching change. So he looks back and I said, hey, Paul. And, and he goes, hey, Dale. And I go, hey, by the way, uh, hell froze over. <laughs> and he looked at me and he goes, what are you talking about? I go, I think hell is frozen over. And he goes, what? And I go, listen, I had the plate yesterday. You didn't ask one pitch. You didn't question one pitch. I think hell is frozen over. <laughs> and he said, he got this like, smile on his face. He goes, you know, I think hell has frozen over. <laughs> Well, who is the the biggest trash talker that you've heard uh, in your career, 33 years? 
You know, unlike basketball, um, where, you know, I think that's much more prevalent, you don't have a lot of trash talk. I mean, uh, you, you, know, you know, a lot of times you have guys that have played before uh, on the same team, you know, in the minor leagues or something, or, or, or used to be teammates, and now they're on opposite teams, and they'll, uh, you know, they'll, they'll uh, in, in a fun way, you know, if, if they're on base or something, and they'll, uh, you know, blast each other or talk about whatever. Uh, but you don't hear, you don't really hear a lot of a, a trash talking. Sometimes you'll have a, a, you know, a Latin catcher and a, and a Latin hitter, and I don't know what the hell they're talking about, but I, I, I'm, I'm just hoping it's not me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but you don't, you just don't get a lot of that trash talking like you do in, uh, in, in basketball. So I mean, you did get to umpire a lot of different no hitters throughout your career. Is there any one that you umpired that stood out more than the others? Well, you know, I mean, the one I had behind the plate uh, with Scott Erickson, obviously, is, you know, uh, I actually had an, a no hitter uh, thrown by uh, Andy Hawkins of the Yankees in 1990. Mm-hmm. But that, that winter, the rules committee or whoever said it wasn't a no-hitter, and I'll tell you why. He lost the game. He only pitched eight innings. He, oh. uh, it was at Comiskey Park, and he gave up, a, a, I don't know, it was two or three runs or something in the bottom of the eighth on errors. Uh, uh, Jim Layritz misjudged a, a fly ball and, 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 and had like a two or three base error. I whatever remember it was. that but, game. So funny. <laughs> yeah, well, it ends up he he he, he – he, uh, uh, he loses the game, right. but he didn't give up a hit. But it was only eight innings, and they mm-hmm. have since sent, uh, said that you have to pitch nine innings or more <laughs> to qualify for a no-hitter. But I had that behind the plate. I had Scott Erickson behind the plate. And then I've been on the field for uh, Verlander's uh, two no-hitters. Uh, um, you know, one of the one of the amazing games I ever saw behind the plate was the Mariners at, uh, at Oakland. Uh, Randy Johnson had a perfect game uh, with two outs in the eighth inning, and he lost it on a 3-2 walk. Thank God the pitch was not close. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, the ninth inning, he lost his no hitter on a on a Lance Blankenship uh, uh, single. But that was the nastiest stuff I ever saw. I mean, uh, he didn't end up with a no hitter, but he, that was the nastiest uh, uh, pitching. You know, he was <laughs> everything was working for him. Uh, uh, that game. I mean, the Oakland hitters were just walking away, like, you know, mumbling. They they, <laughs> they just were uh, not having it that uh, that day. But uh yeah, it's it's exciting, you know, and 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 people ask, well, you you know, if you're behind the plate, are you really jazzed up and it's no hitter? Well, yeah, you're jazzed up, everybody's jazzed up, but even on the bases, you are. I mean, because you have that, you know, that uh, whacker at first, or you have that catch no catch or whatever, you know, especially before the replay, you hope to goodness you got it right, you know, and and it's not uh, something that it was actually a catch you called no catch, and so, you know, it's a, a base hit. So uh, everybody's on their toes. We are talking to 33 year old vet umpire Dale Scott. Uh, he had a great career. 2017, he retired. What was Kurt Schilling like on the field? Now, I've heard a lot of stories about Kurt Schilling. Uh, I, I've met a lot of people that know him personally, a lot of players that have played with him or just absolutely hated him. What was he like as an umpire? Well, he was tough to work from the standpoint. He was very much a competitor. And he, mm-hmm. and he uh, you know, he, 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 he definitely wanted – pitches to go his way which a lot of pitchers do he's not unique in that in that regard but some guys are just tougher on the mound to work than others i actually worked him his second bloody sock game the first one was against the yankees right. in the lcs 
I had him in the World Series start uh, against the Cardinals in Fenway game two of that year, 2004. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's funny, guys, though. Uh, you, you know, he, when he pitched and when I had him uh, and worked him and, I just, you know, he did, didn't seem like too much of an uh, umpire guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, uh, when, when I in 2014, when I uh, when I came out publicly, he, he sent a he tweeted out that uh, uh, something to the effect of, uh, uh, you know, Congratulations, Dale Scott, one a, a great umpire and even better uh, person. I thought, who did? did Kurt did that. <laughs> That's a true story, and and I you know I respect him. And that and uh, we actually talked uh, via uh, you know text or not text, but a, 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 right. a, on online yeah. uh, about six months ago or so. Next up, uh, beep beep. <laughs> Dale, are you there? <laughs> he, yeah, well, yeah. You said what, what? What about that three-one pitch in the third inning back in? Uh, you know. Back in two thousand six, this exact thirty-first yeah, yeah, yeah. pitch what? of this game. <laughs> What'd you have on that? Was it a strike? Was it a was it a two-seam fastball? Should I have done more movement? So yeah, I, yeah. so I, you actually brought that up. I wanted to bring that up with the, you coming out you know, as the first uh, openly gay uh, umpire back in 2014. And that was very good gesture for Kurt Schilling, who gets a bad rap, obviously publicly for of that course, doing yes. that. So and also your book as well. You have you have a book as well. The umpire is out. Um, so tell us a little bit about that uh, that whole storyline r- regarding that. Well, you know, I mean, I, I realized who I was and, and that I was gay back uh, when I was 19 before I even went to umpire school. But I, I also realized that uh, for me to have any type of a, a you know, career in baseball, uh, it, you know, going to umpire school in 1981, that I, I didn't, you know, wasn't going to be revealing that. Mm-hmm. Um right. You know, I, I actively, you know, tried to make sure baseball didn't know who I was. You know, uh, when I started my first game in professional baseball, the Northwest League in June of 1981, was a, was literally two weeks after the first reported uh, mysterious cancers were affecting these healthy men in, in San Francisco and New York, which was, of course, the start of the AIDS epidemic. And that's right when I was starting my career. And so, you know, not only did I want baseball, I didn't want baseball to know who I was because I figured there's no way I would get to double A, let alone you know, advance to right. uh, the big leagues if, if, if they knew I was gay. But now I even had the fear that, you know, if they found I was gay, there would be nobody that would want to work with me because the, the fear in the 80s of HIV and, and those first several years when you know, people were scared, they didn't know how. Uh, you know, you acquired it. They, they you know, they, 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 people were kicked out of school. You know, I mean, I mean, it was a, a tough time. So I actively tried to hide who I was and I did, I got to the big leagues and everything else. It was the late nineties where a couple guys at different times, uh, uh just kind of out of the blue said, Hey Scotty, we know, uh, we know you have a different lifestyle. Uh, we don't care. I just want you to know it. I'd, uh, I'd walk on the field with you any day. You're a good umpire, you're a good guy. And I just want you to know that, you know, and just kind of opening that up. And so eventually that, uh, my shields were broken, so to speak. Uh, so baseball, when I say baseball, the umpire staff knew, uh, the people I work for major league baseball, people sign my checks. Uh, they knew my situation. Uh, but in 2014 is when I came out publicly in December of that year. Um, the first male official in the big five sports active male official, in the uh, first, uh, big five sports to come out and do that. And the, and the, and it was overwhelmingly positive. The, uh, uh, the, the messages I got and, 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 and I was really, you know, happy to, to hear that the book, uh, I wasn't going to write one uh, after I retired, but, uh, I kept, people kept saying, you got to write a book, got to write a book. You know, I, I have a lot of stories, obviously when you're, you know, 37 mm-hmm. years of professional baseball, but Rob Nyer, who helped me with the book said, I said, I don't really want to do that. And he said, but Dale, you have got another story that nobody has. And I, and I, I really think that should be out. And, and as I thought about it, 
with the the reaction I had from uh, the people in 2014, you know, people telling me that uh, because of me, they had the courage to come out to their coworkers or because of me, they're a, a step closer to that closet door. And thank you for giving me the give me the strength that, you know, I mean, it's amazing how you can touch other people's lives. Of course. Um, you know, it's, it just blows me. It still does blows me away. The, the people I've met and, and heard from. So uh, that uh, kind of convinced me, okay, let's write the book. And I had a blast. I enjoyed the whole process. Um, I, I, you know, I, I wrote about 75% of the book. Um, it's gotten great reviews. Uh, the feedback's been outstanding. And so it was, it was a lot of fun and uh, you know, it's a good way to spend the pandemic and write a book, you know, now, Dale, what is uh, what is one of your great stories that you could remember being on the field as an umpire? Is there something that really stands out from your 30 years or uh, 33 years of, of being an umpire on a, on a baseball field? Well, you know, you have a lot of memories of, of first, you know, my first game, my first of play course. game, my first playoff, those types of things. But I got to tell you guys, uh, being part of the 2001 World Series uh, right after 9-11, uh, a seven game series, the home team won every game. Uh, you know, the Yankees had a couple of walk-offs, uh, at Yankee stadium. And, uh, uh, it was just an unbelievable series. And it was, you know, literally that, that my game was game three, which was the first, it might, when I say my game, my game behind the plate was game three, which is the, uh, first game at Yankee stadium, the game that the president Bush threw out the, the first pitch. Uh, you know, you're, it was, it was literally like eight, exactly eight weeks since 9-11 when that game was played it was 14 miles from ground zero didn't a lot of in, things going didn't on in sync sing the national anthem in the third game was it in sync? Uh, i'll be honest with you i don't know yeah <laughs> i'm pretty sure it was because i i'm pretty uh, sure I, you know that was a you know i've i've got clemens on the mound right. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to mentally focus for a play <laughs> game and i've got the president in the in the room uh secret service is, is dressing up as an umpire hey look it's in sync <laughs> yeah so, the, ba- the so band was the eighth I, priority I, I, i'm not sure who was singing quite frankly <laughs> don't worry the band was your eighth priority that day <laughs> okay <laughs> so we talked about the billy martin one uh, earlier but uh, any other managers that you had any uh, unique incidents with either throwing them out of the game or maybe even going with, through the lineup cards any other ones that were very interesting well you know there's just guys i mean uh, uh, uh you know cito gasson and i just never seemed to get along i mean he had those great teams in toronto in the early you know 90s that, but i mean if i said it was wednesday he would say it was thursday um, <laughs> it, 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 we we just didn't seem to be in sync uh one time in in texas uh they were complaining about my strike zone and uh uh he marches out to the mound to talk to the pitcher um and uh, i know exactly who he wants to talk to uh so i thought well let's just get this over with so i i, I head up to the mound and he said uh, where are those pitches and i said cito you know we're not going to talk about pitches and he goes the hell we are you know he he, he blagged or you know <laughs> dives into me so i eject him and uh and he said you know what i am so sick and tired of this i'm so sick and tired of this after this game meet me outside the stadium and we'll uh we'll settle this once and <laughs> once and for all and i said oh that's great cedo i said that's wonderful i said uh, dr bobby brown who was the american league president that's who you write the reports to i said uh, uh, dr brown's going to be thrilled that you're threatening his umpires and cedo goes F Dr. Brown. I said, well, he's going to be thrilled with that too. You know, that's, going to be right. <laughs> that, that's going right in the report. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, so we just uh, never seemed to uh, meet eye to eye. You know, Tony LaRusse is a hell of a competitor. I mean, he, he went, when you see him off the field in a restaurant or something, nice guy, uh, you know, personable talk, he gets that uniform on. Oh man, he is a, uh, 
uh, you know, uh, Jekyll and Hyde a little bit when he gets that on. Um, but you know, it, it, it's a game of personalities. A lot of times I may, I may have, uh, you know, I may walk on the field with my crew, uh, and I may get along with this manager and, and, and the rest of the crew can't stand him or vice versa or something, you know, just because of instances that you may have had, uh, in the past, maybe in the minor leagues or in the big leagues or whatever. So, uh, it's an interesting job that way for sure. As everybody knows, we are talking to 33-year-old vet. Well, I say 33-year vet umpire <laughs> Dale Scott. He's not 33 years old, ladies and gentlemen. I think he, I think you're 67, right? I'm 63. 63. You know, I'll take 33. Okay. Hell, I'll take it somewhere <laughs> in between. I mean, <laughs> then you'd be younger than me, my friend. <laughs> Anyways, my last question for you is. Your best Yankee story, I mean, with Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, any one of those great Yankees, 90s, early 2000 teams. Is there a story that you remember? Well, uh, you know, and I had the Yankees a lot uh, then, um, you know, late 90s. You know, I'm still in the American League, and so you'd see see him a lot. Um, you know, I got a story. Uh, uh, it's it, maybe not the greatest Yankee story, but it, it's, it, I find it very interesting. You know, Derek Jeter, who who uh, was never ejected in his entire uh, major league hmm. career. Wow. And that's, you know, for a guy that played as many innings as he did in as many pressure games as he did, uh, for a guy who, quite frankly, owned the city, <laughs> um, could have done anything he wanted to do, uh, and the city would have been right. I was, I was on the field the opening day in Cleveland in 96 when he started – you know, I, I think he career, might have played yeah. at 95, yeah. but that was that was the start of yes. his, uh, his full uh, career. Season, yeah. mm -hmm. Right. Right. You know, and and like I said, here's a guy that owned the city. All he had to do on a that bad if he didn't like a pitch is just drop his shoulders and just, you know, just give the body language and you would have fifty five thousand people on your rear end or whatever. But he never played that card. Um, he was always very professional. He is, you know, I mean, did mean he, he, he agreed with everything. Absolutely not. But he, but he he always knew. Uh, who he was, what his role was with that team, uh, and and you know, there's other superstars and uh, that that owned their cities or you know had uh, were outstanding players that didn't that didn't or don't with us. I'm talking about that professional as Derek was, and I and I applaud him for that. I remember one time I, I called him out on strikes, and 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 he goes, Dale, that pitch is outside, and I said, well, Derek, I, I got it on the plate, and he goes, and, and we're kind of it was the third out, and we're just kind of walking, you know, as we're talking toward his dugout. I said, you know, I said, I'll tell you what, Derek, I'll take a look after the game. I'll let you know tomorrow. You know, <laughs> now I wouldn't say that to anybody or, you know, but I, here's a guy that hardly ever complains. And so when, you know, when he does, man, you know what, <laughs> you know, I'll hear him out. Paul O'Neill, I wouldn't have done that because he complains <laughs> about every other pitch. Right. Uh, so uh, and sure as heck, you know, the, the pitch, yeah, you know, it was a borderline. Pitch. It, 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 but, you know, I said next day, I said, Derek, hey, I looked at that pitch. Man, you might have had a bitch. You know, mm -hmm. I might have been a tad mm -hmm. outside. He goes, hey, you know. That's cool, Dale. Everything's good. You know, I mean, I, I think players appreciate when when an umpire uh, isn't just uh, high and mighty and I never miss a thing and leave me alone and don't talk to me. Uh, you know, we have to uh, work with these guys every day, uh, year after year. And, and, you know, so you 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 know, you want to be able to communicate with them right. as long as they're being professional about on their end of, uh, of the bargain also. So uh, he's just a, a pretty class guy is what I'm saying. So my last question, I wanted to shift uh, away from baseball to your big Oregon guy, uh, Oregon football, big out there. So what is their 
college football culture like in Eugene? I know you grew up there for a while. <laughs> and also all the chaos this offseason with college football between the NIL rule, oh, between man. the conference realignment, USC and UCLA just moved into the Big Ten just now. What do you think about all that? Well, that's a, that's a S show um, as far as realignment <laughs> and stuff. And I, I'm not sure, you know, that's not over yet. We'll, we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm going to be in Atlanta uh, uh, September 3rd. They're taking on Georgia. Yeah. Uh, last year I went to, uh, Columbus, you know, we were 14 and a half point underdogs. Our best player was, uh, was hurt. I was the token duck at the, at a, at a couple of Ohio state, uh, uh, tailgaters and people were being really, really nice to me before the game. Oh, you came all the way. Oh, isn't that sweet? That's right. You know, cause they knew we we're just <laughs> going to get slaughtered. Uh, but then after the game and Oregon wins, there, it was a different attitude. They were, they were, <laughs> they, were they were a little bit stunned. I'm hoping for a repeat of that in Georgia. I'm not going to say it's going to happen, but I, that would be wonderful. Um, the Ducks on paper look good. We have a new coach. Uh, we're going to have a new quarterback, so we'll we'll see. Uh, but it's you know Duck football. I, I've been I've had season tickets since '89. I've been going since uh, the late '60s when you know when I was a kid growing up there. They were horrible for years. I mean, horrible. But it was, you know, I would go because it was an event. It was something mm. to do. Uh, and you certainly can't say that I'm a bandwagon guy because I've, I've been, <laughs> I've, been uh, I've been with this flock, uh, you know, when the two wins was cool <laughs> as long as we beat Oregon State, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm looking forward to the season, though. Well, we really appreciate you coming on, Dell. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, we'd love to get you on again. The fans love you. Uh, everything that we've read, and so many people are asking us to ask you so many questions. So if, if any of the fans want to reach out to you, how could they get you? Well, um, uh, go to my uh, uh, website, umpiredalescott.com. It's got information about my book. Uh, it's got uh, video clips, uh, podcasts that I've done, uh, reviews, and there's a way to contact me there also. So, uh uh, that's probably the uh, easiest to do that. Well, we really appreciate your time, man, and uh, keep up the good work. Uh, enjoy your uh, retirement and your freedom, <laughs> and we'll talk to you soon. That sounds good, guys. Thanks for having me. Dale Scott, ladies and gentlemen, 33-year vet as a Major League umpire. Fantastic stories. He really is a great person. Uh, and, and he loves Angel Hernandez. So he, there is somebody out there <laughs> that a, actually got, loves him. Yeah, he knew him from umpire school. I got to support That's him. That's a great story. Yeah. I mean, seriously, he, he wore number five. and Number five, baby. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And now he he was wearing 55, and now he wears five again. So there you go. Uh, you know, Dale retiring helped Angel Hernandez be hated even more. So there you go. <laughs> Dale, thank you. Uh, when Thanks, we, guys. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we will get into – More with the Donovan Mitchell situation, Bryce Harper, and the Cowboys here on the Sports Lab Outs. You're you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. This is the Sports Loud Mouths. 631-672-3108 is the number. Remember, you're listening to Sports Slamhouse. We are live every single Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Check out our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Download our app on iOS, WWSRN, or Android, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Well, I will say this, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot to talk about with this Donovan Mitchell story. And I will say one thing about the New York Knicks. And that is, they cannot overspend on Donovan Mitchell. You cannot give up five or more first-round draft picks 
for Donovan Mitchell. Now, I think Donovan Mitchell is a great player. I think he's fantastic. And I think his talent is right there amongst the league's top 10, top 12 players in the league. But to give up five first-round draft picks, Obi Toppin, and and possibly Grimes, it, it, it's going too far. I, I think Fournier, they were, they were trading Fournier because of the contract. They're trying to re you know recharge this this salary cap that they have and and with 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 the whole Julius Randle thing you're hearing that if the Knicks want to trade Julius Randle to get rid of that contract they're going to have to give up a first or maybe two first round draft picks to to lose Julius Randle's contract I would not do that I would not give up that many draft picks to get rid of Julius Randle. So why would I overspend for Donovan Mitchell when he wants to be here? Now, you've been hearing about R.J. Barrett. There was a lot of stories coming out that they want R.J. Barrett and five first-round draft picks. The Knicks would be crazy to give up their best young player for Donovan Mitchell, who's practically the same player. The only reason why you would trade for Donovan Mitchell is because you're you're going to put him on, you're going to have him you know, be a part of a team of an R.J. Barrett and a Jalen Bronson. That's why you would do that. So giving up a guy as good as R.J. Barrett, and I think R.J. Barrett is you know, two, three years away from being a 25-10 and 10 guy. That's what he is, and a consistent 25-10 and 10 guy. That's exactly what Donovan Mitchell is. So why would the Knicks give up a player just as good as Donovan Mitchell and as young? I mean, Donovan Mitchell's 25. Uh, R.J. going into the season, I think he's 22, 23 years old. He's two, three years younger than Donovan Mitchell and give up five first-round draft picks, which could be lottery picks if Donovan Mitchell decides in two or three years to leave the Knicks. Does that make sense? Before I get to my comment, well, we actually have a new caller on the line. Who we have speaking. Hey, how we doing, guys? I'm Steve from Long Island. Steve, what's going on, bud? Hey, how we doing? Uh, I didn't mean to change the no, subject. No, absolutely on not. Go ahead. Yeah, well, the, the umpire that was just on was great, and um, yeah. it's got me in the baseball mind. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the recent moves that the Yankees made, especially the uh, the trade of Jordan Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Now, from what I understood um, in the grapevine, the point of that trade was we were apparently supposed to get Pablo Lopez. Now, even given that, I feel like going into the postseason, you know, the pitching depth is tremendous especially with other than the ace Garrett Cole. We really don't know what we're going to get out of our two, three, four starters. Um, I think even if we were going to get Pablo Lopez, maybe trading Montgomery wouldn't have been the best thing, especially seeing as how uh, he's been on absolute roll in St. Louis 4-0, I believe 0.3 ERA uh, through a complete game on Monday. So I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts. I mean, I definitely believe in Cashman. I know that um, – I feel like every year we, we get a plus and a minus from him. But what he did with Chapman that year, when we traded him, got Glaber Torres, ultimately resigning him, I think that that shows the kind of masterpiece that he knows what he's doing. So I just want to get your guys' input on that. Um, personally, I feel like trading Montgomery definitely uh, could be to the detriment of the team. So, yeah, what do you guys think? Well, I will say this, Steve. I, I like, I, I've always liked Jordan Montgomery. I was one of those guys, especially when he was traded at the end of the trade deadline, I was very upset that the Yankees traded him. Now, they did add Bader. We don't know what Bader is going to be when he comes back, and he, he's added to this lineup. He adds depth to that 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 outfield that needs depth. They added Ben Attendee. So, so they gave the, the Yankees gave themselves enough depth and, and enough hitting 
in the outfield. So, so it's not all about power. The, the Yankees have had problems in the playoffs hitting for average. It's all about power. And that doesn't work in the playoffs. So I understand why they traded for traded uh, Jordan Montgomery and added Bader. But you're right. The pitching staff, there is a lot of questions with this pitching staff. Nestor Cortez has never pitched in the playoffs. He's never been a starter in the playoffs. And Garrett Cole, ever since he came to the Yankees, go look at his numbers as a Yankee pitcher in the playoffs in the wild card game. I think it's over six. So that would scare you if you're going into a series against a uh, a Seattle Mariner team that has Castilla and, and, and possibly a Cy Young candidate. So... That would scare me, yes. So uh, you, you sit here today and you say, why did they trade Jordan Montgomery? And and you say, well, they were they were interested in making a move for Pablo Lopez. Then Lopez, uh, at the trade deadline, there were stories coming out that they wanted Domingo. Uh, they wanted Domingo. Uh, Dominguez. Dominguez. Yeah. They wanted Dominguez and they wanted Volpe to get Lopez. But we also heard that the Yankees were interested in trading for Otani. I don't know if anybody knows that. And what the Angels, first of all, the Angels weren't interested in trading Otani, but if they were, they wanted Pariza, they wanted Dominguez, they wanted Volpe, and they wanted a ton of other prospects that the Yankees had, and the Yankees weren't willing to do that anyway. So there was really nothing out there except going after Castilla, and Castillo has, Castilla has pitched very well against the Yankees. He's actually 3-0 and against the Yankees this year. And he's only given up, I think, one or two runs against the Yankees in the three games. The problem is, is the Yankees weren't willing to give up what Seattle gave up for him. So I, I, I know a lot of Yankee fans are booing Brian Cashman. They're upset about what Brian Cashman did. Brian Cashman made all the moves that you would expect him to do at the trade deadline. We, we talk about the Mets. The Mets made no moves, guys. None. Now, has it worked for them? Well, they, they added two bats, and one of the bats are working out for them, but they didn't add any pitching. They didn't add any bullpen help. You know, They had one bullpen help, I think. Uh, one bullpen help. Uh, Michael arm. Givens, yeah, yes. but he's barely pitched. He's barely going to pitch. So, I, again, he added Benatendi. He added Bader. He added two relief pitchers in Trevino and, and who's the other kid uh, from F. the Cubs. Yeah. And, and, and then, obviously, they added Montras, who who – obviously hasn't pitched well. The other day he pitched well against the Mets, but he hasn't pitched well since he came to the Yankees. So he did what he was supposed to do, but Yankee fans were just upset at whatever Brian Cashman did uh, at the trade deadline. So my answer to you is um, I am worried about the Yankees' starting rotation. I don't trust Montas in a playoff series. I don't trust Nestor Cortez because he's never done it before. I don't trust Garrett Cole. I don't trust uh, Tyone. I don't trust any of their starting rotation arms. But I do trust in what Brian Cashman has done. So if the Yankees could hit for average in the playoffs and get on base and do the things that we expect them to do with their lineup, they score five or six runs, they're going to win most of those games. So there's so many questions with the Yankees, and the only way the Yankees are going to be able to answer that is they get back on that winning streak and show us what this lineup and what this pitching staff could do. Right. Well, I also feel like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's easy to break these down, you know, two weeks after, two, three weeks after the trade deadline. And what's funny is you see Oswaldo Cabrera out there mm-hmm. in right fields, you know, making uh, play after play. So, you know, obviously I agree with you with the outfield depth, but then we call up this kid, throw him in right field, and he robs a home run. He throws a runner out at home. I mean, obviously he had that little snafu where he ran into – 
Um, I forget who was playing second base that day, but, you know, they dropped the ball. Um, but, you know, he's still a rookie. Um, you know, but again, I feel like, you know, like I, I know we made the moves we had to make, but I just feel like, you know, a big lefty like Jordan Montgomery, especially like you said, Nestor Cortez, he's never pitched in a postseason game before. I'd like to believe in him, but we don't know what we're going to get. And we put a lot of fate in Montas, you know, and, and he put up a, you know, finally a quality start the other day. But, you know, so far we haven't gotten exactly what we um, thought we were trading for. And the Ben and Teddy trade, I think, is turning around now. I believe, you know, he had to change his swing a little bit, the difference mm-hmm. between Kansas City Stadium and our stadium. Um, you know, now he's starting to turn on a little bit. Um, I'm just looking at the box score now as he stand and came back tonight, mm-hmm. has a couple RBIs. So, you know, we're getting the team back a little bit. I mean, obviously, you know, with the pitching, there's been a lot of injuries. I mean, you know, Nestor, Efros, both on the 15-day IL, obviously Clay Holmes and everything like that. So, and even more so, why? Keeping a Jordan Montgomery, you know, having that big lefty come out in the game, especially, you know, a game like Mont- if Montas pitches and gives up four or five runs in the first two innings, and then here comes Jordan Montgomery maybe to hold down the fort and the offense can step up. It's so. very important for this lineup to get healthy and, and actually get hot going into the playoffs because over the last, I would say the last four weeks, Yankees lineup has been one of the worst in baseball. And this is a lineup that's too good and too stacked from top to bottom, from one to nine, to have these lapses where they can't hit, they can't hit home runs. I mean, especially with the power. The Yankees have, I think I think the number is eight players in double-ditch yep. home runs. The Yankees have over 200 home runs. They lead the they lead the major leagues, I think, by, I think, 15, 16 home runs. So this team has always hit for power. The question is, are they going to hit for power in the playoffs? Are they going to hit for power in the playoffs with people on the bases? And that's been the problem for the Yankees year in and year out. The rotation, if, if the rotation can keep uh, keep the games under three runs, they're going to win the majority of the games because this lineup is going to be able to put up runs. Even in the playoffs, the Yankees over the years, except maybe the last two or three years, they've put up runs. It, it's, it's, to me, the problem is, is the bullpen in the later innings falling apart. Now, going into the season, they had by far the best bullpen in baseball. What the Yankees need to do is make sure that Holmes is 100% healthy. That is so very important. Britain comes back, and Britain is the old Britain. Something that we haven't seen in two years since he came to the Yankees from Baltimore. I, I expect Zach Britton with this UCL tear and coming back and, and, and being healthy, this row, this bullpen to be as good as it was in the beginning of the season, even without King. But who would have thought, Steve, that King was the the anchor to this bullpen all season long. No, you're right. And, you know, I mean, even with the Clay Holmes situation, um, you know, he had a couple of bad outings before, you know, they put him down with the back injury. Um, but even even that was kind of like testing the waters. I mean, I feel like the past couple of years, the Yankees, you know, have been good, especially the pitching coach, being yes. able to get the best out of uh, the relievers, you know, getting guys that were mid-level in other teams and then, you know, finding the one pitch that they are, you know, their strengths and and really showcasing that um, in the later innings. And we've always been able to patch it together, which, you know, I think, uh, especially in the playoffs, is huge. Um, Steve, who, the, the, do you, who do you think the Yankees' kryptonite would be if they had to play him in the playoffs? The kryptonite? Yes. I think – for right now, especially the way the offense has been, I would almost say the the batting average of runners in scoring position, the ball risk, you know, and that's plagued the Yankees the past couple of years in the playoffs as well. We'll get the runner on first, we'll get the runner on second with less than two outs, and then they don't end up doing anything. A lot of that, you know, with, uh, you know, guys free swinging, you know, Stanton yeah, and last year Sanchez, and even, even Torres, you know, they, they changed their approaches and, 
and and you know the way they play in the regular season and the postseason seems like everybody's trying to hit a home run. I like the addition of Rizzo. I've noticed a lot this year him having at bats with two strikes or he's choking up and takes the single. Obviously a Lemayhew as well. Mm. Um, Judge this year too. I mean uh, the other night against the Mets, you know, had the big uh, RBI single. He was and, fantastic. You know, yeah. And it's it's not just the home runs with him, and 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 that's the key as well. I mean, in the playoffs, we're going to be facing all teams one and two starters. You know, the home runs aren't going to fall in as much, and that's where the the batting average with the runners in scoring position, to me, I think, would be the biggest weakness. Something that they need to focus and work on. Maybe talk to some of these guys into changing their approach, especially when it comes into the playoffs. Having a runner at third with less than two outs, we should be able to knock that run in. John Carlos Stanton plays a big part of the Yankees' offense. In the last two years, you look at the playoffs, he's been the best hitter for the Yankees. That's why I was very surprised that Brian Cashman traded Jordan Montgomery. Because if you look at Jordan Montgomery's numbers in the last four years, when he has started in the playoffs, he's been the best pitcher for the Yankees. And you see what he's doing right now for the Cardinals. And the Cardinals are a scary team. If they get into the playoffs with Wainwright, Montgomery pitching the way that he is, and their lineup hitting the way it is, and they have arguably the MVP of the league in the National League in Goldschmidt. I mean, they're scary good. And and, and that lineup in the middle of their lineup is as good as any offense in baseball. So, uh, yeah, the Yankees, they have a lot to clean up as far as their lineup is concerned. But I think getting Giancarlo Stanton healthy and making sure that Aaron Judge is, is his bat speed is on time. Everything is on time for the playoffs is very, very important. And they got to figure out who's going to play center field in the playoffs because – uh, and and who's going to be the bench players? Obviously, Ben Attendi and Bader were, were brought to this team to play in the playoffs. So what are they doing with um, – who's the center fielder? I'm sorry. Hicks. Hicks. What are they doing with Hicks? He hasn't hit all season long. He's been really um, bad, uh, even in the outfield, something that he, it's his yeah, strength. He's regressed defensively. He's, he's regressed. So And the Yankees were trying to trade him at the trade deadline. Nobody wanted him, and even though they're paying him $10 million a year, which is not a lot. So, uh, I mean, if you look at – you look at the situation of where the Yankees are. You have to be smart on what this bench is going to be and what this lineup is going to uh, build up for the playoffs to be as well. I, I think the rotation, we know who their three starters are going to be. I, I think it's it's pretty obvious. It's going to be Garrett. It's going to be Nestor Cortez. And it's going to be Frankie. That's what I believe it's going to be. They did not bring Frankie Montez here to be a bullpen arm in the playoffs. They expect him to be one of the guys to pitch in the rotation in the playoffs. That's why they traded away three of their top pitching prospects. So I expect that Frankie Montez will will figure things out and become the dominant pitcher for the Yankees. We'll see. I mean, there's like, what, 40 games left? I expect the Yankees to figure it out. Snuck says, I'm not sure about what you're going to get out of Kermit in the postseason either. Uh, what is it? What, what's up with Kermit? Because there was a Kermit the Frog in the bullpen, and when he was throwing the ball, everybody's calling him Kermit. He doesn't even look like Kermit. He doesn't even talk like Kermit. So how is he Kermit? Uh, Clarence, what up, fellas? Uh, Carl says, Bader equals trash. Snug says, I was glad. Why does he hate Bader so much? I, it don't beats me. But it's a Cardinals-Cubs rivalry thing, I guess. Uh, Snug says, I was glad when I heard Cortez mustache was okay. It was just a groin injury. Uh, Carl says, how did any of this rant explain the trade of Montgomery? Snug says, it's going to be awesome when Castillo bounces the Yanks from the playoffs. Well, right now they're expected to play the Blue Jays, Snug, <laughs> because it would be the wild card matchup. <laughs> no, but he, the, the Yankees get the bye. Whoever wins that. Yeah, Blue Jays, then they would play in the second round. They would correct. play the Yankees. Uh, Stuck says, if the Yanks hire Kenny to 
could get their starting pitcher's head straight, they might have a chance in the playoffs. So stupid. Five out of the nine starting lineup were below the Mendoza line during their rough stretch. Uh, yeah, a lot of them were hitting under 200 in that stretch. The only one that wasn't, I think, was Aaron Judge and I think LeMahieu, but even LeMahieu was right around it, too. So, uh, Steve, to answer your question from, from before, uh, I'm not as worried about the inexperienced ones because I always say inexperience is not negative experience. Sometimes they're a bad postseason pitchers, but Montez has also had his smaller blips with the athletics. Now, granted, a lot of the athletics pitchers were bad in the playoffs, and that's why they never won a playoff series since 2006 and even in so many different Moneyball current regimes, but Montez is a good power pitcher, and I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because he did have the family issue when he first came to the Yankees, and he pitched very well against the Mets, and I'm a Mets fan, so... I've, I'm and that's not... a good Mets lineup. Yeah, that's a very good Mets lineup, and he had a jam in the first inning and then was just cruising after that. Very six strikeouts. Six strikeouts. I mean, yep. he struck out some good, you know, some good batters. So I expect him to go out there and, and when he figures things out and he becomes more confident uh, in that rotation to be a dominant force for the Yankees. We can only hope that he is, because if he isn't, that's another Oakland Athletic pitcher that we brought in, a.k.a. Yeah. Sonny Gray, that failed with the Yankees. And to put it in perspective, Steve, I've all, I was one very against the Sonny Gray one at the time, too. I knew he would crumble in Yankee Stadium because he was a finesse pitcher. He didn't throw very hard, and it didn't work. So when they made that trade, but I was for the Montez trade. I'm not a Yankee fan, but I, I figured that might work, and I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. As far as the Montgomery one, I actually was in favor of it at the time because I thought the Yankees needed somebody to keep the uh, toll off of Aaron Judge and center field. Not that he's played a bad center field. He played a good center field this year, but somebody that has an, that's leading the league in for MVP right now in all of baseball, you want to be able to not have to have him get hurt. And uh, an IL stint is not what they need when they're trying to fend off the Astros and, and try to take home him, field And advantage. what makes him trash? That's what I don't understand. Now, I understand he's a car, he was a Cardinal and it has something to do with the Cardinals and Cubs, but Bader is not trash. He's He, he can hit for average. Uh, his best year, he had 16 homers. He's not a power hitter. The Yankees don't need power in the outfield. They got enough of it. They need guys that can defend, that can cover the field, and steal bases, bunt the ball when they need him to bunt. This is all things that Bader's strong at. So what is the complaint about bringing him? I promise you this. If the Yankees go far in the playoffs, Bader is going to play a big part in certain games. Stealing bases, putting them on when they're down by one in the later innings at second base where they need runs. And I think he's a very important piece to the Yankees. The Yankees don't have a lot of speed. They really don't. Right. Go look at their, I mean, kind of Falefa. I mean, uh, uh, don't say Gleyber Torres. He can't steal. DJ LeMayo can't steal. I mean, who, I mean, Aaron Judge is okay. I mean, he's athletic. He can John Carlo, forget it. I mean, who could steal? The only person that could probably steal is kind of Falefa. That's it. So, to me, they needed speed on the bag. So getting Bader, he's going to, he's automatically the fastest player right. on that team. Which, so. which helps postseason strategy, too. Because even if Bader doesn't Absolutely. start, you could bring him in as a pinch runner, too, yeah. if you want to sub, sub one of the outfielders out. Even, even like subbing a catcher out or an infielder out and then subbing him in with someone else later just to get that winning run, tying run if they're in extra innings or something like that or in a close if game. If Bader does nothing in the playoffs and steals, Steals third, gets the game-winning run in the American League Championship that helps them go to the World Series. That was all worth it for Jordan Montgomery. That's the way the Yankees look at it. Because if the Yankees win the World Series, or they get to the World Series, that's a win for the Yankees. Yankee fans have been craving the World Series. The last time the Yankees were in the World Series was 2009. 
2009. Who would have thought that? It's the longest drought the Yankees have ever been in right. when it comes to going to the World Series. Yeah, so five different times they lost in the LCS, and I granted the Astros cheated, so they probably should have been in more. Should have been in, but should have, could have, would right? But oh. the ti- the Tigers twice, the 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 Rangers or the Rangers twice, the Tigers. It doesn't help uh, the way they've had those even the early 2010s with that. They've always been just short with that, but nevertheless, this probably is their best chance. But now they are going to have to find a way to fend off the Astros. Steve, who do you think is going to be the closer going into the playoffs? Well, I guess we're going to have to see how Holmes comes out. I mean, it surprised me that we didn't use Chapman at all in the Mets series, especially mm-hmm. in the second game. Um, you know, I think that he should have been the one getting ready uh, as Schmidt was like coming towards the end. So, um, you know, also I think Chapman, you know, even, even if he does great, like he's shown us in the postseason that he can't be the most reliable one. Um, you know, even with the Astros cheating, I mean, he's given up run after run. Um, in high leverage situations, or, you know, he can be totally erratic sometimes, you know, loading the base, pressure situations. Clay Holmes obviously had a tremendous year so far. You know, that sinker was really working for him. I think a couple teams caught on to that. Um, we'll see how he responds. I think it's very interesting when Zach Britton comes back, and I'm hearing Zach could be back in the next three weeks. When he shows up at the end of September, what he is as a, as, as a bullpen pitcher, and if he does pitch well in the bullpen for the one, two, or three, four games that he plays, do you put him in that bullpen for that uh, you know divisional series against whoever they play, Seattle or the Blue Jays? That's going to be the question that only Brian Cashman and Aaron Boone have to figure out. Now, Zach Britton, to me, if he is back to what he he used to be, at, you know, two three years ago, I would put Zach Britton as your closer, Holmes as your eighth inning guy, and uh, Schmidt as your seventh inning guy, or one of those guys, or uh, Wendy, uh, whatever his name, Wendy Peraza, or somebody like that, guys that you can trust. Because you cannot put Chapman in. I know a lot of people love Chapman, and he's the great Chapman. He's a Hall of Famer. He's not the same Aroldis Chapman. He's not. His his hardest pitch this year was 97 miles per hour. He doesn't even throw over 100 anymore. And his best pitch is the off-speed pitch. Who would have thought that when a, this is a guy that threw it 103 miles per hour? So this is, this is his last year as a Yankee. Guarantee it. And, and the Yankees are going to have to figure out where you're going to put Aroldo Shep. Maybe you make him a long... You know, a fourth or fifth inning guy if, if one of your pitchers get into trouble. Right. That's where where you put him. I can't trust him in the later innings when you're up three to two or four to two or four to three because this is a guy that's choked in the playoffs. And I don't want to hear about Houston cheating or anybody cheating. You just couldn't cut it in the playoffs. That's why that's what worries me about Chapman. And if there's an odd man out in that bullpen, I would believe it's a role to Chapman. Yeah, and let's not forget, Chapman also blew the save in Game 7 for the yep. Cubs. I mean, the Cubs yep. ultimately won, but mm-hmm. he gave up a two-run home run mm-hmm. to, um, was that, Raji Davis? Yes. Yep. We might not have a choice but to trust him. I mean, at least in the seventh and eighth inning. Brayton coming back, I think this last month is really going to be more of a uh, a bullpen by committee, and we'll kind of, you know, take the hot hand going into the playoffs. I mean, it's baseball, so at the end of the day, you really have to take whoever's hot at the time. Um, you know, if Holmes comes back and starts stinking, then, you know, you got to start thinking other options. But I think... It should be uh, Clay Holmes when he comes back to lose, mm-hmm. I guess, until he, you know, maybe proves that uh, he just doesn't have it. I mean, he had a great stretch in June. Um, but again, teams are starting to catch up to, to the sinker. Steve, so. I would be worried about Clay Holmes. First of all, he was never a closer. He was never a closer. Even coming from Pittsburgh, he wasn't a closer. I think he was a seventh inning guy. So putting him in the closing position for the first time in the playoffs when there's pressure on him, 
He hasn't handled the pressure in the second half of the season. I think you move him into the eighth inning. You bring in a guy like Zach Britton. If he's 100% healthy or even 99% healthy and you trust a guy, this is a guy that's done it before. He's pitched in the playoffs. He's been successful in the playoffs. Now, is he the dominant closer like we Mariano Rivera? No, but who is? You need a guy that you can trust. As far as the the later innings, like even the seventh inning, you have Jonathan Luizica, who, by the way, everybody thought was a top 10 relief pitcher going into the season. He just hasn't cut it. First of all, he hasn't stayed healthy. And and to me, when he is in, he's 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 scared of throwing his changeup. And that right. is, is so very important with some of these hitters that can hit the 99, 98-mile-per-hour fastball that he throws. He needs to figure out the confidence level to throw that changeup and get people to chase at it. If he doesn't, Jonathan Lewiska is, wor- is worthless, worthless, and he shouldn't be on the mound for the New York Yankees. Well, I agree about that. I mean, Lewiska also, 2018, yep. uh, they started throwing him in the eighth inning, and yep. uh, you know, he did very well for a little bit. I believe he got injured too, mm-hmm. and that's what cut uh, his stint short. Um, but again, I, I think it's all going to come down to you know what we see in the next couple weeks. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, I do know that they're not afraid to mix and match. I mean, I noticed the the Mets uh, have been doing this a lot, throwing Diaz in in the eighth inning if you know the, the part of the lineup is up. I mean, maybe it'll come down to a situation like that. A few four you know, out we're, saves, we're, but we're even not as inning, much as last you know, year. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's kind of a new strategy. I'm yeah. starting to see a little bit too. And um, you know, again, in the playoffs, you know, it all comes down to those high leverage situations. I have a funny feeling the Yankees are going to play a lot of these games close. Mm-hmm. And uh, the good the good sign, at least with the offense, is especially early in the season, we showed, you know, that the, the hitting can rise up to the occasion. You know, we had a lot of walk-offs, kind of reminiscent of 2009. Um, but obviously with the recent offensive struggles, I mean, the lineups looked a lot different. I, I like that they're shuffling things around a little bit. Um, I don't really think Rizzo should be leading off, to be honest with you. I noticed that a couple games. I didn't like that. The Cubs did that a lot with Rizzo in his prime, too. So he's, he's more used to it, I guess, than you would other say other power hitters of that. But, but, but definitely with the low batting average, it's definitely surprising. But he does have a good on-base percentage for somebody with as low of a batting average as he does. He's almost 340 for a guy who's hitting 220. So there's a little bit of incentive there. Now, I wanted to mention, because so, I'm a Mets fan, Steve, so I know about this whole bullpen situation, what they do with Diaz. They've the, the, Diaz has been great, but they have not much versatility besides that. And because of that, they've had to stretch him out it's certain points in the second half of the season. I would prefer if they didn't have to do that because Diaz sometimes has been a little more rocky coming in with inherited runners throughout his Mets career so far. I'm not thinking about even just 2019 with that, but the Yankees have that same, have had that same problem too with Chapman too. And I think that's more of the bigger thing when you were talking about what role is he going to be used in? I don't really care as much about the closer who's closer, who's not formality as much as it is make him a role he's comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And because he's a closer naturally, like have him start with a fresh inning type thing, even if it's the fifth inning, even if it's the sixth inning, have him start with that rather than trying to thrust him in with inherited runners. Because even somebody as good as Edwin Diaz has been this year has had his biggest issues this year, small issues in comparison to other years, but have been with inherited runners too. And same kind of thing with Zach Britton, who's much more of a natural closer if he does come back, maybe try to ease him in with a fresh inning. Right. Now, I got another question. Now, I've heard this from, um, you know, like players speaking and stuff, and I definitely heard it from Stanton about how, you know, he plays better when he's actually playing in the field as, uh, yeah. you know, as compared to if he's just a DH. So Pete Alonso says the same thing. Yeah. Is great, but, you know, I'm afraid that that might be to the detriment of getting the best out of Stanton because the best he played this year was also him playing a lot of right field. Right. So do you guys think that that could be an issue at all? I mean, no, I think I think John Carlos Stanton should be playing in the field in the playoffs. 
He's first of all, if he's telling you that he plays better in the field, you want to get his bat rolling in the playoffs. So you do whatever it takes to get that bat rolling because he is the best hitter for the Yankees the last three, two, three years in the playoffs. It's not even close. He's been the best uh, hitter for the Yankees. So you have to do what's right for the team, what's right for the organization. If you expect to win this year, and this could be the last year Aaron Judge is in this lineup. This could be the last year that this team is together the way it is and put together the way it is. Brian Cashman could be gone next year. So we don't know what's going to happen in the offseason. So this is an important year, not only for the Yankees, but for New York as a whole. You have the Mets, you have the Yankees. You want to see a winner, and you want to maybe you see a Subway Series this year. But it's so very important to make sure that Giancarlo Stanton is hot and he's playing well getting into the playoffs because he is the piece that gets this lineup moving. Look at what the Yankees are doing right now. Giancarlo Stanton comes into the lineup. It's the third inning, and it's 8 nothing Yankees. Okay? When was the last time we saw the Yankees put up an eight spot? I think against the Cardinals, the game they lost 12 to 9 or whatever. How long ago was that? Well, the Montez debut, yeah. How long ago was that? Three weeks ago? Uh, Yeah, August 6th or whatever. I I mean, the Yankees haven't put up an A spot forever. And that shows you how very important Giancarlo Stanton really is. So to do, to, for him to speak up and say, I'm better when I play in the field. You do whatever it takes to get this guy playing the way you expect him to play as an MVP. Steve, that is a very good question, too, because now a lot of these National League teams are going to have to be dealing with it, too, with the DH being universal now throughout. And also postseason strategy, too, depending on how Mm -hmm. deep your team is, too. There's a lot of teams. A lot of the top teams are teams that have depth. Not, I mean, yes, you're going to have your stars, too, but you have to have some level of lineup depth. You can't just have, like, a top four and then a big fallout at five through nine and be able to win in the playoffs. So guys are going to rotate in so many different roles, too. So it's a very unique circumstance, I think, with each team, depending on the player level. Yes, the confidence thing is definitely something that is psychological obviously that's a whole different subject but with Stanton's injury management especially coming back now and you see the impact like Errol was saying with the his bat in 100%, the lineup 100% you can see it you have to be able to protect him I know yes he does want to play in the field too but you're going to have to ease him back just to get his bat in first because that's the biggest focal point to look at because the Yankees have all the outfield depth now I'm not saying don't play him in the field ever but you do want to be careful with him in terms of that just because you don't want him getting hurt again and that's the same thing I think I was mentioning with Judge Judge has stayed healthy all this year so far, but he's been injury-prone in the past, so that's why they brought in all those other outfielders. And just so everybody knows, you know who started for the A's tonight? James Caprillion. Yeah. You know where he's from? Yeah, the Yankees, Sonny Gray trade. Yeah. The Yankees <laughs> traded him for Sonny Gray, and everybody was saying this guy was the best pitcher in their farm system. Go look at Caprillion's numbers ever since he's come into yeah. the major leagues. Mm-hmm. His ERA is 4.23. I, I think his most strikeouts in his career, I think at one point was... I, I think a little was, over 100 last yes. year, I think. He was good last year, but he's been awful this year. He's been horrible. So for all those pitches that the Yankees traded away to the A's to add Montez, a lot of, a lot of people believe that two of them could be really, really good. Right. Don't count on it. I, I mean, because we've seen the Yankees trade away pitchers for years, and none of them, none of them panned out. So, I again, Frankie Montez could be. Could not pan out for the Yankees, too. Look right. what Sonny Gray went to Cincinnati. He was an all-star. But with the Yankees, he was one of the worst pitches in baseball. So, I mean, you just can't win. And you have to figure out who can handle New York. And a lot of these A's pitchers, and I'll give Jeff a lot of credit. He's not been in the feed. Jeff has said it to me over and over again. When the Yankees trade for any Oakland athletic pitcher, they've all 
failed. Go look at all the pitchers that left the Oakland Athletics yeah. and went to other teams with the Braves <laughs> and all those other teams. Maybe one out of all of them, out of like 15, yeah. 20, of them, every, 20 of them, ever succeeded in the majors after they left Oakland. I remember that. I think we were looking at it upward with the Frankie Montez trade initially, or the rumors initially. I think the best individual season was that one year of Brandon McCarthy in like 2014. Yeah. And then he went to the Dodgers after that and actually pitched well over there too. But still, like that was the best year. And he, that was like past his prime. And I and I will say this, Steve. What scares me right now is, and, and I I know the Yankees have said this Nestor Cortez thing is not bad, but when you're put being put on the IL for a groin injury as a starting pitcher, that's not good. I, I mean, it, it's not good. If you're a Yankees fan, and and he's been your more, um, I guess you could say positive pitcher in your rotation out of all the pitchers most steady I would say the positive of this rotation has been Nestor Cortez and being that he's nine and four with a 2.63 ERA one of the better ERAs in the American League losing him for uh, you're they're saying possibly two to three weeks he won't be back until the end of the season are you going to trust him in your rotation as your top three uh, you know, as a top three pitcher when you get into the playoffs, being that he's going to miss a significant amount of time. Yes or no? No, and I'll tell you why, too, because a lot of these pitchers, you know, him, Tyone, even if we kept Montgomery, they're all reaching innings limits that, um, you know, they're not going to be used to. And, uh, you know, even if Cortez, you know, pitched the last two weeks, I believe he's already way over um, whatever innings uh, he's pitched previously. And, you know, that's when fatigue starts to come in. So you combine the fatigue with the, you know, the pressure of the situation. So to be honest with you, no, I mean, I'm not, it's hard to say you don't want to trust Nestor. I mean, he's put up a, a spectacular season oh, and um, fantastic you know, season. Only, only had a, a handful of bad starts, but again, you know, the, the playoffs are a different beast. And especially with the expectations, I mean, you guys mentioned it, how, uh, you know, this is, this could be the last year of judge. So like that has to be a little bit of extra pressure that they're feeling, you know, feeling that pressure of not making a world series. And so nine, the way they started the season, you know, you throw in even a little bit of the external pressure of possible subway series. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot more uh, outside factors that are going into this to where a player like Nestor, you know, that, that could falter him a little bit combined with the fact that he's now pitching, you know, innings that, you know, way beyond what he's ever used to. I mean, if you're a Met fan right now, you're not excited of what you've seen over the last couple of weeks. And and also what the Braves are doing. They're they're the hottest team in baseball. They're unbelievable. If you look at the second half, they're, I think, second when it comes to wins out of any team in baseball. And if they continue doing what they're doing, I think they're one and a half games behind the Mets. If they continue this pace – they're going to surpass the mess, the Mets. And the Mets, who were very, very Met fans that were very, very confident going into the Yankee series that they could have swept the Yankees and really taken full, you know, full throttle of the National League East. They've fallen off. They've lost those two games. And, and the Yankees, unfortunately for the Mets, the Yankees got hot at the right time. And now if this lineup starts to wake up like they're doing tonight, it's 9 nothing now. And they it seems like every single pitch they see, they're hitting and they're getting they're getting connected with it. Maybe John Carlos Stan, like you were saying, Steve, is the piece that gets this this lineup moving. I I I'll say it again. What we have seen over the last couple of years is John Carlo being the best hitter in pressure situations than any of the Yankees. Any of them. Aaron Judge, Torres, uh, Rizzo, DJ LeMayu, he has been the best hitter. Crazy to say that about John Carlos Stan. 
who at one point before he went to the Yankees never played in a playoff series. And then all of a sudden, all the Yankee fans saying, oh, you know, the Yankees, da-da-da-da-da, and he stinks, and all this other stuff. Meanwhile, the Yankees were pretty much handed John Carlos Stanton by Derek Jeter. It was a gift. He gift wrapped <laughs> right. John Carlos Stanton to the Yankees. At that point, he was the MVP of the National League. And say whatever you want about what he's done since he's come to the Yankees. Go look at his numbers in the playoffs. He's hitting over 300. He, he's got, I think, four or five or six home runs in the, you know, the, the games that he's played with the Yankees, I think in four or five games as a Yankee. I mean, it's ridiculous what his numbers are. So you need to keep these guys healthy if you expect them to make a run deep into the playoffs. Well, that's always the frustrating thing with the Yankees. I feel like, you know, with, with Judge and Stanton, it's, it's, it's all about, uh, you know, it seems like every year they're, they're getting injured and, and, you know, for, for lengthy amounts of time. I mean, I feel like last year, Judge would get injured and he'd miss a month. And, you know, that, that's a month of one of the best players in baseball. Yeah. Gone. So, you know, it's just, you know, I do agree with, with the fact that you do have to keep them healthy, but it does come to a certain point where the win, you know, we do have to win now as well. So, I mean, um, you know, I've heard, I, I read a you know, Bleach report today that, you know, the Nestor uh, IL stink could be more of a breather. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you could know, it, it's concerning. A hamstring injury on a pitcher, like, never is good. Or well, it's a groin. not a hamstring. It's a groin. It, it, groin. It, it, hamstring's it, it, worse. Hamstring is worse. Because it, 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 a groin, uh, it could be a bruise. They say it could be a sprain. With If it's a sprained hamstring or you pulled a hamstring, you, right. you might have your season might not be the same for the rest of the season. Hamstrings are so very important for a pitcher, as well as it is for a running back. When you hear running backs have hamstring problems, even wide receivers have hamstring problems, yeah. they're not the same players on the field for the whole season. Uh, I've I've heard groin injuries and they've come back at a hundred percent and played well. So uh, I think as a Yankee fan, you're happy it's not a hamstring, but again. You're also not happy that he is hurt at the time where the Yankees need him the most. That's being that they're not playing well and they're not getting started. Their rotation has not pitched very well. So uh, it's, there's a lot of questions for the Yankees. But uh, I think they're answering it tonight. If they could sweep the A's, they swept the Mets. If they, How many games do they have against the A's? Four? Three. They have three games. If they or can, no, four. You're right. It's Thursday. Four games. So if, if the Yankees... They beat the Mets twice. They won the game before that. So they've won three in a row. They win this. This is four in a row. If they can come out winning three out of the four games in in Oakland, I mean, seven and one, you know, I think those are good numbers for the Yankees from from, from what they had in August at the throughout the, the early stages of August. So I, I'm happy if, if Yankee fans see the situation getting better that John Carlos Stanton is back. Right. I think momentum is going to be big too. You know, I mean, uh, you know, like you said, if we go, you know, seven and one or seven and zero in these next couple games, uh, definitely like rolling into September hot, keeping it going. I mean, you know, I feel like the, the, the couple weeks that they were losing, there was a lot of like, uh, you know, like a Donaldson grand slam. And it's like, you know, we're all trying to look for that, like one moment, like what's it going to be that gets the team to click. And it would be, you know, you get a moment like that and then lose the next two. Um, I didn't necessarily think it was going to be like one moment. I thought it would be, you know, something like the Mets where you win two solid games in a row. Now you get a couple easy games against Oakland. You know, now you're rolling. Players got confidence back. You know, uh, Garrett Cole's been pitching better, you know, which is great. I mean, he, you know, that's what we really need. And we, we needed a couple starts out of him where he didn't do well, where we looked at him and said, you know, you need to be the stopper. And then that was the game against the Mariners where he gave up six runs in the first yeah. inning. And you're sitting there like, what the, you know, what the heck happened here? So, um, you know, for what I really believe is, you know, the, 
what happens in the next couple of weeks as far as, you know, if they can get that stride back and get that swagger, you know, Stan being in the lineup, you know, that protects a couple more guys. They should gotta... bring you in. They should hire you. <laughs> they should bring you as a pitching coach slash player, and they move you at third base, and you, you teach them a thing or two how to play third base because Donaldson, I, I'm sorry for the amount of money the Yankees are paying him this year and next year. I, I say the Yankees at the end of the season, win or lose, they pay out Donaldson's $25 million to get rid of him. I think he's been a bust all season long. I don't want to hear about it. I watched the MLB Network and hearing, oh, do you see how pretty that swing is? As pretty as it may look, I, I mean, a guy that's making $25 million a year and he's hitting, what, 240? I, I mean, and he has 11 home runs, or what is it, 13 home runs? That's not that's not Josh Donaldson that we remember in 2017 when he won an MVP, okay? It, it's not the same Josh Donaldson. And I don't want to hear it. Maybe it was steroids. Maybe it wasn't. Who knows? I'm not pointing fingers. But this isn't the same Josh Donaldson. And, and I, I really was excited to bring Josh Donaldson because yeah, he, he's a good defensive player at third base, which he hasn't really been this year. And uh, he's a good bat. In this lineup, I expected him to be protected. He was really protected because he was between Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton. And you would expect a former MVP to get you, you know, RBIs and home runs. He hasn't done that. And that's what scares me about Donaldson. Now, if he shows up in the playoffs, which he hasn't done in his career, if he shows up in the playoffs and plays well, then I'll shut my mouth. And I thought it was a great move by, uh, you know, Brian Cashman. Maybe Brian Cashman sees something that we all don't. But, uh, again, I I would trust Brian Cashman with anything because uh, even though the, the Yankees haven't won a World Series since 2009, Brian Cashman has made fantastic moves in certain you know trade deadlines or even before the season even started on players that people gave up on uh, 223 this year but also a 307 on base percentage is not great no. either 12 home runs 48 RBI struck out 116 times definitely not ideal and definitely nowhere near worth that kind of money if that's the case and that would be quite a postseason turnaround for Donaldson because it is prime even on those peak years he was bad as well even with the Blue Jays who had a loaded lineup around him and Oakland who had a good lineup was more of a was more obviously moneyball team but still not great either so that would be quite a turnaround if he's able to pull that off but yeah definitely not worth that kind of money I definitely would buy him out if that's the case I personally wasn't a fan of the Donaldson trade I mean you know we had Gio Shell out there at third base and you know he was almost like a vacuum out there you know I'm not saying he's a better third baseman than Josh Donaldson but definitely he was more than serviceable also Gio had great adding average runners in scoring position when I mentioned before is one of the big things for the Yankees that's plagued them in the playoffs I believe the year that he came up, he was second in the league or, or third in the league with the batting average of runners scoring position for the regular season. And that coming from, you know, a young kid like that. I, I always liked Gio Urshela. I mean, I understand, you know, we need to get rid of Sanchez and we definitely needed IKF. But I thought the, the, the you know, almost, you know, swapping Donaldson for, for Urshela, I, I thought almost would be a downgrade. I mean, unless, you know, we found the fountain of youth for Donaldson. Uh, it just, to me, seemed like another bloated contract the Yankees would take and, you know, take a, a former great player and try to get the last little bit of him. But Gio was was very serviceable out there, you know. Yeah, but you can't keep everybody. And the Yankees have to, with, with what Brian Cashman is trying to do, he's trying to put, you know, bring new people into the, the clubhouse, new personalities, uh, to, to figure out what this, you know, the personalities they want to bring into the playoffs. I, I, the problem with the Yankees over the years, and I, I'm, we're going to let you go after this, the problem with the Yankees over the years is that that clubhouse, uh, ever since that whole Boston Red Sox thing with, with Aaron Judge playing, you know, you know playing the New York, New York past the Red Sox and, 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 and all that stuff happened, and then the Yankees lost that series, the, the Yankees have not been the same. 
They really have not been the same. That swagger has been gone. The Yankees need to find that swagger again. If it's not this year, it'll be no year. And, and I'm, I'm not saying because this could be Aaron Judge's last year as a Yankee, but this is a team that should win this year. Besides the Dodgers, I think the Yankees have the second best talent in all of baseball. You look at from top to bottom, even their not not even counting their rotation that's played well this year, but their bullpen before even King got hurt. This was the best bullpen in baseball. Now, so for some reason they're they're on a streak where they can't pitch, they can't find the strike zone, they can't get anybody out. This is what happens. They gotta find that swagger again. If the Yankees can find that swagger again, they could go all the way. And I've seen baseball teams, aka the Atlanta Braves last year, where everybody thought, what the hell is this team? Where are they going? They made three trades at the trade deadline. And those were three quality trades, which transitioned them all the way through the playoffs, all the way to the World Series, to kick the living you-know-what out of you-know-who. So, I, again, I expect that the Yankees could get hot at the end of the season, get into the playoffs, and get this bullpen moving. Maybe Zach Britton's the answer. Maybe Tyone figuring out how to find a strike zone again. Or maybe just sitting Nestor Cortez out for a couple of weeks so he can get his legs out on a, under him again. So, whatever it is... I hope Brian Cashman and Aaron Boone do the right thing because I want to see another World Series. I'd love to see number 28. And the good point with the Braves, too. What they did at the trade deadline, they went for combined production to make up for an injury. Exactly and what the Mets did. Exactly what the Mets are trying to do. We'll see if it works. And then with the Yankees, outside of the Montez trade, they made it work with other bullpen pieces and other combined Benetendi, Bader. What I Bader mean, could be once he comes back from the injury because I, I still trust him. I think he's a good, very good defensive center fielder and he's still a stolen base contact type hitter that's going to be a necessary role for the Yankees to play. So even if you don't get like the combined power or whatever, the combined on base percentage. Bader's always that guy that Brian Cashman finds and he brings in and he gets hot. Yeah. We've seen this before. We haven't seen Bader yet, but watch. Bader will get, he'll, he'll come into this lineup before the season's end and you will see why Brian Cashman brought him in. Because he's got a tremendous legs, tremendous speed, and he can hit for average. He's not, he's not a bad, you know, he's not bad in the box. He, right. he doesn't strike out a lot either. Yeah. So that's what we hope that Bader turns out to be, a contact hitter, which the Yankees need. Right. And, Steve, you, I know you were mentioning the trade before. Like, I was actually one of the people that actually liked it for that reason, for what he could bring off the bench or in that center field type role for the Yankees. And in hindsight, obviously, you're looking at what Montgomery does and saying, okay, the Yankees got lost in the trade. I don't think anybody, I don't think even Cardinals fans expected what Montgomery did, is doing so far. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, also with the hindsight, you know, that, like I said, with Oswaldo Cabrera out there making plays and mm-hmm. everything, you know, sure. it makes it a little more difficult, you know, especially trading a pitcher who had a mid-three ERA for someone that was in a boot. So you're almost like, Hoping, I mean, back, you know, you said he was going to steal bases and stuff, but again, he's in a boot. I mean, I'd like to believe he can, but it's, uh, I think it's a little more risky play than if he was coming, you know, fully ready to go right now as compared to like, all right, let's hope he, you know, stays, you know, like uh, the rehab and then all the, that goes. Brian well Cashman, Brian Cashman knew something before he made that trade. You think that Brian Cashman didn't think that he was going to be healthy for the playoffs. That's why they made that trade. They want to make sure they have wheels on on those bases when they need him the most. He can steal bases. This guy is right. a really good, you know, base runner. I mean, he had, what, 25 stolen bases, 30 stolen bases last year. The guy could steal bases. And the Yankees are very weak in those right. uh, in those uh, those aspects of the game. So I expect him 
uh, when he comes back to be healthy and do the things that he 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 can do. That's the only reason why Brian Cashman made that trade. That's 15 already this year and the limited amount of time he's played. And again, if the Yankees do use him in that kind of role, we'll have to see what Aaron Boone does with it. But if they use him in that kind of role, they could definitely get another element to their postseason identity, which I've always said was the biggest issue with the Yankees because, yes, their lineup is good on paper, but sometimes when they – Sometimes in the playoffs, we only see one or two guys go off for them, and you can't do that. And they need another element in their game to not strike out all the time and try to be the same types of hitters. Steve, thank you for calling, bud. Hey, thanks for taking my call, guys. You guys really have a great show uh, here, and I look forward to listening to it in the future, all right? Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Take care, guys. Steve's awesome. Yes. He's great. He knows his Yankees. Oh, yeah. He knows his Yankees. Um, To get back with the Donovan Mitchell situation, um. I I I don't. I, he mentioned the Heat and the Nets. There's no way he's getting traded to the Nets unless the Nets trade Kyrie Irving for him. Yeah. And, and does Danny Ainge want Kyrie Irving? He already traded. I mean, he already signed Kyrie Irving years ago, and it didn't work out in Boston. So, or he traded for Kyrie Irving, it didn't work out in Boston. So, why why would he do that? Uh, when it comes to the Utah Jazz, especially when he's trying to rebuild. Kyrie Irving ruins coaches and ruins ruins young players. That's not going to work. And as far as Ben Simmons, there's no way, there is no way the Jazz are trading Donovan Mitchell for Ben Simmons. So that's out on that, too. So And and they're not, the, the Nets are not trading Kevin Durant. So the Nets are out. And it's not the Heat, because they don't have the money. Right. So it, it could only be the Knicks. It could only be the Knicks. Yeah. So as much as Donovan Mitchell and, and Danny Ainge doesn't want to trade him to the Knicks, and we all know Danny Ainge does not want to trade Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks. That's a fact. He doesn't want to. But I think in the long run, he's going to have to. You're going to lose leverage, Danny Ainge. And you think Miami's just going to be, all right, we're going to go up your offer from the Knicks. No, Pat Riley's going to be stingy at you right back. We saw him do that with the Jimmy Butler trade where they didn't have to give up a, uh, give up a lot in that deal. A lot of the moves they've made since the post-LeBron era, I guess you could call it. Pat Riley has built a very good team. And Eric Spolstra with the coach, they've built a good team just on that principle as a result. Yes, they have a lot of money issues right now because Kyle Lowry's contract didn't work out. They Victor Oladipo banked on himself, and that didn't work, so now he's gone, too. But you think the Heat are going to offer at this current time better than what the Knicks did with the five first-round picks, Fournier and Toppin? Yeah, that's not going to happen right now. And So you're trying to push it all out. If you're going to get Miami involved, you're probably going to have to get a third team involved to make the money work. So you're going to lose value there. And also, you're going to lose leverage of the player just wanting, forcing his way out more. This is the first step in that. You're reducing the market. Now, the market was already pretty reduced as it was. Yes, there were some other dark horse teams in the mix, too. I know the Hornets, the Wizards, teams like they were pushing but Donovan Mitchell now made it formal that this is this is the only three teams you're going to make it work. So either take the Knicks offer or just try to struggle with Pat Riley to make it work because those are your only two options at this point. He's not Pat Riley is not trading for Donovan Mitchell. He, he's he's more interested in signing his own player in Tyler Hero and getting him on the cheap. Right. So I, I, I Donovan Mitchell is definitely out of the question. Yeah. Unless he's going to trade Jimmy Butler. Right. I think I think the Heat are more in a position right now to maybe see it make a bigger trade deadline type deal rather than an in-season type deal just because they have a lot of money to figure out right now. And the Lakers trade for Patrick Beverly from the Jazz, likely to let go Russell Westbrook. This isn't a surprise. Anybody that thought that they were going to keep Russell Westbrook on this roster after what we saw last year is crazy. Now, 
if he gets traded to the Jazz, I, I mean, if he, if he, uh, I'm sorry, if they buy him out, where does Russell Westbrook go? Now, a lot of people say the Knicks were very interested in him. He's not going to the Knicks. They're not bringing Russell Westbrook to the Knicks. He would probably go to a team like Orlando or one of those teams that will bring in a veteran guy, uh, a semi-star that can help some of these young players develop. How about back to OKC? That team is young. I, I don't Fans think love gonna, them there. I, I think that could work. How about Phoenix? Uh, off the bench. Is what yeah, but to, I'm saying he'd have to bench. settle for it. Depends on could, if he wants. That, if you could so get 15 know. points from Russell Westbrook off the bench, why not? Okay, no, I, he has I, a chance. To I win. just don't know what kind of role he wants. No, you're right. You're right. If how he many wants championships does OKC? First of all, how many championships does Russell Westbrook Zero. won? No, that's understandable. I don't know what he's trying to go for. He wants point. to win a championship. So if he wants to win a championship, yeah, you're gonna have to take a big pay cut to go there. But yeah, make it work. I mean, even Miami, maybe sure. he takes a league minimum and goes to Miami. Yeah, and helps them win. But he's not going to start, and he, and just like Carmelo Anthony, Carmelo Anthony still to this day think, thinks he could start. I don't know where Carmelo Anthony's going to play. I mean, there were rumors that he might go back to the Knicks, but I don't think the Knicks want him now. I've heard different stories from his agent that he he would take he would take a league minimum to come and play for the Knicks and, and be a bench player. Uh, his family still lives here. His son's grow, you know he's growing up and he's he's pro, he's about to play high school ball. So. I don't know what Carmelo's plans are. Now, I, I also heard uh, that he could go to Golden State. That's what I also heard. I also heard Philadelphia, too, as yeah. a possibility. I mean, he I, I would think that he wants to stay on the East Coast. This is where his son is. This is where he lives. But uh, Russell Westbrook, it's a very interesting thing if he becomes available. He has his choice where he wants to go. Maybe he goes and plays with the Nets, mm. you know? Why not? A bench player, maybe. Add, add, add another. Uh, add another Why not? <laughs> another I, big mouth there. I, I mean, they like the big mouths. They yeah, like they the do. Clowns. Believe me. I mean, it is a circus. <laughs> uh-huh. over there. Why not uh, bring another circus in Russell Westbrook in there? All right. So Russell Westbrook and Ben Simmons, if they shot twenty Could you times, imagine him and Kyrie, how many times will they actually make it? Could you imagine him and Kyrie Irving on the same floor playing on the same team? Bitching and moaning, who's going to shoot the ball? Yeah, now this is what I'm, I'm more curious on. If Ben Simmons and Russell Westbrook shoot 30 times in a game, how many shots do they actually make? Is it over or under five? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I think it's a interesting, you know, argument on where Russell Westbrook wants to go. Now he wants to. I, if I was Russ, I would want to go to a team that has a chance of winning. Because if you never won a title, and and when when you go down and you retire and you you're going into the Hall of Fame and the first thing that pops in your mind is I never got a chance to win that big trophy. Right. That 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 to me just tells me I'm not the, one of the greatest point guards of all time. I don't care if I was the last person to ha- average a triple double in a regular season since Oscar Robertson and had better numbers than Oscar Robertson did in one season uh, that we've ever you know and he had one of the best seasons and he was an MVP. Yeah. So. Uh, Russell Westbrook has not been the same player. Now, I'd love to see Russ come back to form where he's averaging 18, 9, and, you know, 9 or something like that. When those are numbers where you can use and you can do with. Maybe Chicago with Russell Possibly, Westbrook. Possibly, yeah. I mean, that over there. Back with I Billy think Donovan. Billy yeah. Donovan mm-hmm. could actually control him. We've seen that over the, you know, over the time that he was in OKC. I, I don't know. I, maybe the Wizards. You know, Back. yeah, he was loved over there, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case because the the, the fans and a lot of the not the necessarily the players they just drafted because they didn't play with him, but the, a lot of the younger players they drafted before that really liked him, so that's definitely possible. Uh, so I, I don't know. I I don't think it's the Knicks. So any of the Knicks fans that think that Russell no. Westbrook would be a Knick and he'd take the league minimum to go and play in New York, the Knicks aren't winning a championship right now. So <laughs> I I don't think maybe Dallas, maybe playing with Luka Doncic, maybe. I, I mean that makes sense. I mean. 
Dallas has done nothing in the offseason. They lost pieces. They lost their starting point guard in Brunson. He goes to the Knicks. He took less money to play for the Knicks. Uh, and the Knicks are paying for it, by the way. And the Knicks are, uh, and the Mavericks don't have a lot of depth <laughs> to begin with, as it is. So you better hope they all overperform in the playoffs like they did yeah, last year again. Uh, well, Luka Doncic was the, the answer. To yeah, of course. Luka I mean, Doncic, and Bronson. And Bronson. Luka Doncic, though, yeah. But think about it. Luka Doncic's been in three playoff series so far in his career. is already averaging 30 points. I mean, he's carried a lot for them. And, and if I was Russell Westbrook, I want to go back to the East. I do not want to stay in the West. Sure. That's just my opinion. I, I have a better chance of winning in the East than going to the West. So it, there's a lot of questions on what the Lakers are going to do with Russ. They're going to buy him out. Are they going to trade him? I, I don't think anybody's going to take you know take the bite and 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 get a first you know cause they want a first round draft pick for Russ and they're not getting. Yeah, it. they're not going to get that. They might even have to give up first round picks just to trade him at this yeah. point. So well, he has one more year left on his contract. Yeah, so it just depends on if the money hurts more or if the lack of draft stock hurts more because they don't have their first round pick this year anyway. Right. So it would have to be it would have to be other years that are going to make that kind of thing work, or they'd have to trade another player. Like what would be worth it for at this point? And a lot of that is going to come down to uh, Mr. GM LeBron. No, please. <laughs> Ah, oh, LeBron James, the richest basketball player in NBA history. Who, and a very questionable GM. <laughs> you know what's so funny? I, I always see his production all over the new movies. Like, every single new movie that comes out now, it's it's Bron. It's Bron. That's, that's his production company, Bron. Mm. So, every time I see it, I'm like, oh, LeBron James is you know, stapled his name to here. He stapled his name to that. He stapled his name to that. I mean, the guy's all over the place. He's making money, you know, he's pulling money out of his you-know-what. So, mm-hmm. I mean, his son's, you know, on, in the process of possibly being an NBA player. He's not his father, for anybody no. to think that. But his younger brother, I heard, is really good. Wow. He's another heard, one. Yes. All right. I, I heard that the younger son, not Bronny, the other one, is better than Bronny. Like, a lot better than Bron. Okay. So, uh, I forget his name. I'm not sure what mm. LeBron James' second son is, but... Uh, he's a pretty good ball player, and he, he's played very, very well. He's on the varsity team right now, so I, I think he's like he's two years younger than Bronny. So uh, Bryce Maximus James. Yes, Bryce. That's his name. He's pretty good, man. He's fifteen. Okay, yeah. all right. So, he's yeah. pretty good. Uh, I, didn't, I, I never. I, I I might recognize the name. I didn't know he was already that. I heard high he's school. a he's okay. a really good shooter, and uh, he, he's growing. He's getting bigger. So mm-hmm. I, I I think. LeBron, I don't know what about Bronny, but Bryce, you know, two, three years down the road, he could be another player that could be playing in the NBA. Yeah, because he's got time to, a lot of time to still grow in his body. Too, I don't 15. think LeBron's going to be in the league for another four or five years. Um, I think eventually he's going to want to retire, but he's still I, yeah, playing I, at the top of his Right, game. I think I even said on the weekend crunch, too, when we were doing it for crunch time, I think I said three years, maybe four, but that would I be I think it. three years. Yeah. I think three years. He'll play one year with Bronny. That's what I believe. He signed a two-year extension with the Lakers. There was a reason why, because in two years, Bronny goes into the NBA. Correct. So then he could decide on where he wants to go. So whoever drafts Bronny, wherever he goes, he goes and plays for his son with his son for, for one year, and then he retires. He, he did what he wanted to do. He played. He had a sensational career. I'll probably have every single record in NBA history. He'll go down as one of the top three players to ever play this game. Um, I want to finish up with uh, a little – Baseball and fo- uh, football. Bryce Harper is is set to rejoin the Phillies uh, early t- as early as tomorrow. I-, I think this is good for baseball, and I'll-, I'll tell you why. Philadelphia right now is in a is in a wild card race. They're not in a pennant race because of the way the Atlanta Braves and Mets are playing, but they're in a pennant. They're in they're in a wild card race, and they right now if the season were to end, they they have the last wild card spot. Mm-hmm. So. 
Adding Bryce Harper, one of the better offensive players, the last year's MVP of the National League, to your roster, you, you can't cry about. And and to put a power bat like that. Now, we don't know how long it's going to take him to, to get his timing back. I remember, remember, he's been out of baseball for over a month, month and a half. More than that. Is it really? Like two and a half, three months now. Really? Yeah. Three months? Yeah. I, I didn't even think it was. Yeah. Okay, so more than two months. So he's been out of baseball for a while, and this is a guy that, you know, needs his at-bats. But if you can get him hot going, you know, going into last month of baseball and get in, sneak into the playoffs, watch out for Philadelphia. I told everybody this. If Philadelphia sneaks into the playoffs, all those moves that they made, they added some, you know, bullpen help. They added some rotation help and Noah Syndergaard. I mean, this team could be dangerous. And ever since they, they dropped G, uh, G, um, sorry, No, not Didi. Um, um, Girardi. Oh, Girardi, yeah. Ever right, since, yeah. and they brought Thompson in. They've been a different team. Yeah, they had two. They've had two massive winning streaks with that. Now, now, th- how sustainable those are is another question. Now, the interesting thing with this is the Phillies have two top pitchers and not a lot of depth with their bullpen, but their bullpen's been better, like you're saying, since Thompson's arrived. Now, their hitting has been a lot more steady in terms of it was Schwarber carrying them for a while. Alec Bohm's had a nice year at certain spurts, but it ha- they haven't had the consistency they were supposed to. Real Muto's down this a little down this year. Castellanos, who they brought in as free agent, down this year. So. They're going to need Bryce Harper, like you were saying, with Stanton to kind of spark the value of everybody else. Now, throughout the season, they've played well steadily with him and without him. And the Nationals, when they, when the Bryce Harper was over there, had stretches like that too. So what kind of impact will it be right away is going to be a big thing. But the Phillies now in that kind of race, you can't expect the Padres to stay this cold for a while. They're going to need that spark to happen earlier. And the Brewers are the other team in that race right now, but they've kind of stumbled as of as of late too. So that's going to be a big question for them. But you're right. How fast will it be for Bryce Harper, who's been great since he's been a Philly? He had that one, I think, bad first three months of his career at the Phillies, and he's been f- fantastic since then. Much more consistent year-to-year than he was with the Nationals. So probably a little bit easier of a transformation, assuming those other guys show up. And then the, there's the Cowboys, and oh, yeah. we mentioned the Cowboys. They're losing Tyrone Smith, uh, obviously the, the star left tackle. I, I mean, the guy can't stay healthy. <laughs> and that's why I said he wasn't going to play left tackle this year. I, I, yeah. I really believed he, they were going to move him to the guard position and move the, the kid that they drafted, Tyler Smith, yeah. Tyler Smith, to the left tackle position. And now it's, it, it's going to happen a lot faster and a lot sooner than we thought because now that Tyron, you know, um, Ty, uh, Tyron Smith is is out for a significant amount of time. They're going to have to do that. So, um, is this good news for the the Cowboys? No, because they're already weak on their offensive line. They lost Collins in the offseason. He goes to the Bengals. So, and and now they lost their our predominant two best tackles. It one to free agency and the other one to injury. And now you're going into the season where not only their 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 offensive line has been weak since like three four years ago. Right. Their center retires two years ago. They're not the same team. This has been their absolute strength, what they've built on winning over the years. And now they have from one of the best offensive lines to one of the worst offensive lines with the least amount of depth. Yeah, and we were mentioning it with our draft panel, too. I think there was one guy, one of our guys liked him a lot, Tyler Smith, but a lot of the other ones were saying he was still very raw, too. So how quickly he'll have to adjust is a lot more accelerated now because he's going to have to instantly play one of those tackle positions. We were thinking, okay, maybe he'll ease himself in at guard. They'll try some other guys, veteran guys in there, and make him play tackle, play right tackle later in the season. Now that maybe becomes less of an option, too, where – 
you're probably going to have to play him at left tackle now to at least balance it out because he's a first-round pick. You're expecting him to get good right away. And it's hard to replace Tyron Smith, who's been a steady Pro Bowl player when he's been healthy, but he hasn't been healthy the last four years, really. And that's going to be tough production to be able to replace because if you put him at right tackle, you're going to have him and Martin on the same side, and teams are just going to rush the left, and it's going to be very hard. Well, that's why I thought they were going to move him to guard. Yeah. I I thought uh, after what we've heard – Going into pre, you know, preseason games and OTAs, that uh, Smith is going to be uh, Tyler. Um, Tyler Smith. Tyler yeah. Smith. T- Tyler Smith's like, um, I-, I guess, um, protege. He was going to be um, Tyrone Smith's protege. I keep because they're both last names. Yeah, Smith. yeah. Tyler and Tyler. <laughs> Tyron. Uh, so, but I-, I expected Tyler Smith to move to the outside and Tyrone Smith because of his age to move to the guard, and now. I mean, now you have to do the opposite. You you have to move just because Tyron Smith can't stay healthy. Right. And here's the other factor, too. Like, Zach Martin is a fantastic all-pro guard, but he's going to have to do so much more on that team, and he's had his own share of injury issues lately, too. Now, he's still played better amidst all that. We've seen Tyron Smith come back and not been the same. Really, Zach Martin's regression hasn't come now that he's a little older. Now he's 31 years old, but he's going to have to do a lot more of that tackle-type role, even if he doesn't necessarily play tackle in that offense. So you're going to have to really trust a lot of these other random backups to make it work. Terrence, crazy. Terrence Steele, who was a, I think, a third-round pick of theirs. And uh, RJ Ochoa, a guest of the show that we had on mm-hmm. uh, right before the draft, was was tweeting about it. Like, they really screwed up in not addressing a lot of depth this offseason either. Yes, they drafted Thank Smith. Thank Jerry. Yeah, they drafted Smith, fine, but there, there could have been either, like, free agent guys. That, and by the way, everybody's names. saying Tyler Smith has looked really, really good. So the Beave and all the, the Cowboy fans were so upset that they drafted Tyler Smith. Are you really upset now that you lost Tyron Smith for possibly the whole season? Yeah. I wouldn't be upset. Because they, they really don't have the depth at this point to maybe be able to make that, that kid kind come, of thing becomes work. a top-end, you know, left tackle. And, the, and I heard he's mean. He's not a nice guy on the field. He's one of the meanest offensive linemen to come out of this draft. So the fact that you you have a guy of that magnitude. Now, they say he has short arms and all the different things that Correct. we've heard. But he, he's very powerful, and he's very strong. And for a guy his size, he's very fast. So uh, I expect him to, you know, to, to fit right in with uh, the, the Cowboys offensive line. The question is, it, losing Tyron Smith, how much of a loss is he? Uh, remember, with his age and really not the same player he once was as an all-world pro, all-pro type of tackle. So right. he's not that. T- and he's a Hall of Famer, by the way. I think he is, too. Like, you, there are arguments at the time that he, whether he was the best left tackle in football or not. I never thought he was the best, but he was always two or three to either Jason Peters or Trent Williams. And then Joe Thomas, obviously, was in that mix, too. But in the NFC East, you had all three of those guys. But still, he was always a Hall of Fame type, you know, Pro Bowl type every year. And now the last three years really has been downgraded with injury. And even so, like even if he does come back late in the season, where will the Cowboys be? We don't know what the record they will They move be. him to the guard position because yeah. if Tyler Smith is playing well, you do not let you do not pull him. You do not move a rookie that's playing at the top of his game. You right. move him to the guard position, which I thought that that was their plan eventually in the future anyways. Sure. Move the older guy to that position, uh, build a good rapport with the younger guy and, and give him confidence that he's got his back. That's what I would have done. You know, so everybody keeps saying that we're going to wait until Tyron Smith. I think if, if Tyler Smith showed himself to be that dominant force that they thought he was going to be when they drafted him and the way he felt, they said that they believe he fell to them. Because at one point, we, we've had some of the draft experts that were on the show 
they thought he was a top 10 talent before last year. Right. So for the fact that he fell, what, in the 20s? 24. They, the, the Cowboys thought they got him out of steal, and maybe they did. Because if he turns out to be the best tackle in the draft or the guy that shows up to be the meanest and the best, I mean, the Cowboys won. They did, they did win with, uh, you know, Micah Parsons. Yeah. They got the defensive rookie player of the year. So uh, maybe he becomes a, a big offensive force at that offensive line. And, and the Cowboys did something last year to add up front to the trenches for their defense and then add to the front to the trenches of their offense the year after. So they're going to have to hope now that a lot of these either late-round picks or maybe guys that they signed that are from roster cuts we're going to have to make this work because if Tyler Smith isn't that guy right away, then you're dealing with Zach Martin really carrying that line. Tyler Biata as a center is okay, but again, it's not nothing It's nothing drastic like you saw with that line of 2016. That was the best line in football and even beyond that. So you're looking at a case where with all these offensive skill players now, I know they lost a couple in the offseason, but still, that's what you're really trusting because their defense is good at spots, but nothing special either. So you're really trusting this offense to really carry the load a lot. And now you have really one trustworthy offensive lineman now, now that Tyron Smith is out. Uh, good luck, Dallas. Good luck. And especially against the Eagles and Washington. And by the rushes. way, I've heard a lot of great things of Daniel Jones. A lot of great things with Daniel Jones. So far... I've heard he's he's looked great in practices. The two games that I saw him play in the first uh, the first uh, quarter of the football games that he played, I know the first two, two two drives that he played in game one In game two he played most of the first quarter. He looked fantastic. And if 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 Dable figures him out and gets him to play at the top of his game like he did for Josh Allen, watch out for the Giants because their schedule is easy. And so far, Daniel Jones, what I like most is he's overcoming all these different rotations of wide receivers. They just lost another guy for the season, too, in college. Did Johnson. you see what Wendell looked like? Wendell, uh, Wendell Robinson, I think his name is? Yeah, right? Wendell Robinson. Wendell yeah. Robinson. Did you see what he looked like standing next to Daniel Jones? I didn't. But oh, my God, he's a midget. I, I, I would imagine so. He's, that's why, that's why everyone was so surprised when they took him where he was. He's five foot eight. So. I, I mean, the guy's a midget compared to Daniel Jones. I mean, Daniel Jones, Jones towers over him. Right. Towers over him. Yeah. So that's what you're really going to have to hope for. But Daniel Jones has done a good job in terms of maneuvering through other receivers. Now, Colin Johnson, who just got hurt, was that guy when Tony was right. hurt. So are they gonna, is they're going to have enough time to find out who that is in the third preseason game against the Jets if he does play. I'm not sure what the Giants' timetable is with trying to play their starters or not because they played most of their starters against the Bengals that were healthy. Now, some of them also got hurt in game, too, which doesn't help, especially on the offensive line. But still, Daniel Jones, I think, has done well, at least in that aspect of maneuvering it. And that has a lot to do with Dable trying to being more accepting and trying to make the scheme work. Well, what do you think Dable needs to do this year to make Daniel Jones play better? I think designed motion type plays are definitely suited for him because we've seen Daniel Jones roll out for his life a lot of the time too. It wasn't designed. It was something that was is something that was scrambling because the line was so bad. Now, if Dable can make the motion aspect work, I was saying make Wondell Robinson in the roles that the Bills use Isaiah McKenzie last year, a guy that can move around, line up in the backfield, line up as a receiver, slot receiver, and get those guys in motion. Maybe play action with him. Use shovel passes, stuff like that. I think that kind of 
element could add another aspect to Daniel Jones' game where you could rely more on the yards after the catch rather than just the raw accuracy that Jones has struggled with in the past, too. And the same kind of thing with Tony, too. Once he gets healthy, I want them to do the same kind of thing with him because a lot of, outside of Diggs, who just to do naturally stuff for himself with, with the Bills, most of their other receivers were like that. Cole Beasley was like that. Isaiah McKenzie, like I was saying, was a kicker turner type for the Broncos. They made him work in that offensive system for Buffalo. And now they have now they replaced him, essentially, with Jamison Crowder this year, too. So they look like they look for those types. And the Giants have two of them. Everyone was questioning why they drafted Wandell, including myself. And maybe they're looking to have two of those types of players. Well, who on the Giants you expect this year offensively to explode? Is it is it Galladay? Is it somebody that you least expect that will explode in an offense of this magnitude? Very you know, very interesting offense that he likes to use different wide receivers in so many aspects of the offense. I think the obvious answer is probably Wandell, just because Tony with the injury is just a little behind in terms of learning the playbook and trying to get his role acclimated right now. Galladay, I kind of expect at this point to be like a Gabriel Davis type because he's a big body. Now, Gabriel Davis last year was great in the playoffs, but throughout the regular season was kind of inconsistent. As long as Galladay could get back to some level of that because he was just battle season outside of that one game against the Saints that he was good but that was really it they at least just need to have some level of production out of him just to have something different in that system so that was the exception to the rule in that case I think in terms of most complete of what they have now Wandell is probably the most likely to do that because the tight end room is very questionable right now they have a rookie in Daniel Bellinger who has had flashes but nothing special and then they have a bunch of veterans Saquon Barkley he should be better than what he's been because he's been hurt. And then they don't have they don't have the same level of running back depth either. Remember, they had Gallman mm-hmm. years before. Devontae Booker was good last year, too. They don't really have that type of guy. So probably most likely of a breakout is Wandell, I would think, just from that. Because I was originally thinking Colin Johnson, too, the way he played. But uh, now he's hurt, so tough to tell. Well, that's it for our show, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to thank Mont Fantana. Uh, for joining us from ESPN Cleveland. He's fantastic. He really is a friend of the show. We really appreciate it. The third time he's been on a show. Funny guy. Loves coming on a show. Happy to have him. Anytime he wants to come on, Matt, you're more than welcome to show and and give us your take on what's going on in Cleveland sports, and we'll definitely get him on again. Dale Scott, uh, 33-year-old vet. Uh, umpire that is retired in 2017 because of concussion. Great stories, great person, great personality. We really appreciate him joining us. Uh, Steve, for calling the show. He was fantastic. Great takes on the Yankees. All the fans that listen to us throughout the country and all the fans that continue to listen to us throughout the social media market. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Continue listening to us as we grow as a show and as a network. Thank you. Um, We will be back next week on Tuesday and Thursday. Speedy, good luck on your, uh, I guess, your... Mets, uh, what is it? Old-timers day. Old-timers day. The copy of the Yankees, the old-timers day. Well, but. no, they, the Mets haven't done one since 1994. So the Yankees have probably had like six since the last one the Mets had. <laughs> well, there you go. So uh, <laughs> congratulations to you and your family to go to the Mets game. So enjoy. Uh, Josh is going to the same game, so yes. maybe you can meet up with him. Um, thank you again. Keep listening to our show. Weekend Crunch, Saturday. Check us out at 7 p.m. on 103.9 FM if you live here on Long Island. Or check us out on iHeartRadio, LI News Radio. We'll be back next week. Good night. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.